don't hit that skip button because I have huge news for you. The Rewind of the Living Dead t-shirt lives. It is here. It is available to purchase. Oh yes, I'm not kidding. We finally got our Rewind of the Living Dead t-shirt out and it's amazing. It is printed by the same company that prints for Cavity Colors and Fright Rags, which if you're a hardcore horror fan who buys a lot of horror t-shirts, I know I do, you know that's the very best and highest quality because we couldn't do anything less for our fans. It's an amazing full color design designed by Jason Ragosta. It's very cool. It features a zombified myself, a zombified Damon, and it looks just like an awesome horror shirt because that's what we want because we're horror fans too. So we wanted to make a t-shirt that you could really sink your teeth into. Go to rewindofthelivingdead.bigcartel.com. Again, that's rewindofthelivingdead.bigcartel.com to get your t-shirt today. Rewind of the Living Dead is a review show, so spoilers are ahead. In 2014, HBO launched a new anthology series created by Nick Pizzolatto about a pair of detectives investigating an occult murder that ultimately spans three different time periods across 17 years. The series was an instant hit, with the first installment hailed as arguably one of the greatest single seasons in TV history. Two more seasons followed, but didn't find nearly as much success, and it appeared the show was dead after Pizzolatto's deal with HBO came to an end. That all changed after Tigers Are Not Afraid director Issa Lopez was contacted about potentially developing her own idea for the show. Lopez was a huge fan of the series and she already had been working on the bones for an idea in her head about a murder mystery that took place at the edge of the world in a cold, isolated town in Alaska. Two-time Oscar winner Jodie Foster signed on to star in the series with Lopez writing and directing every episode. The story centers around the shocking death of several scientists working at a research facility near the small town of Ennis, Alaska, and a local police chief tasked with solving the crimes. I'm working on this new case, a missing scientist, frozen solid. I've seen that before, years ago. The night country, it takes us one by one. In the latest episode of Rewind of the Living Dead, we're going to ask the right questions and remember that time is a flat circle as we review True Detective Night Country. And I am Chief Patrick Danvers. <laughs> and Patrick, this is a rare treat because we are once again, for a rare time on this show, diving into a television series. Have we only done one before Stranger Things, right? I think it's only been Stranger Things. We've yeah. only done Stranger Things, but you and I are huge fans. Well, I would say I go beyond huge. I would say I was an obsessed fan of True Detective Season 1. I yeah. did watch Seasons 2 and 3, but I was obsessed with Season 1. So... When True Detective Night Country was coming out, we kind of contemplated it and said, listen, this teeters on the line of horror. And I actually think I would argue the new season's probably more horror tinged than any other season, honestly, uh, especially when you deal with some of the supernatural and ghosts and different things that happen in this season. Uh, and so we are going to tackle this week, True Detective Night Country. 
Yes, Damon, True Detective Night Country released in January of 2024 on HBO and HBO Max, starring Jodie Foster as Chief Liz Danvers, Kaylee Reese as Trooper Evangeline Navarro, Fiona Shaw as Rose Ajanu, uh, Finn B- Bennett as Officer Peter Pryor, Isabella Star LeBlanc as Leah Danvers, Christopher Eccleston as Captain Ted Connolly, and John Hawks as Captain Hank Pryor. And as you said in the intro, Damon, written and directed by Issa Lopez. And if you listen to this podcast, and you love horror and you have not seen Tigers Are Afraid, which is written and directed by Issa Lopez, one of the truly most phenomenal films of the last 25 years, Damon. And I don't think that's hyperbole. It's a truly amazing film. And when I heard that a new season of True Detective is coming, of course, I was excited uh, because like you, I was obsessed with the first season Um, and I did watch seasons two and three and I actually didn't hate them the way other people seem to. So I was all up for uh, a season four. And when I heard Issa Lopez, the director of one of the best movies I've seen in 25 years, is coming on to de- direct this entire season, to write this entire season, much like in the very first season, uh, Nick Pizzolatto was the director, and uh, I'm sorry, the writer, and uh, and Carrie Fukunaga was the director. I was I was ready again for sort of that singular vision. And Damon, you're right. The reason we're reviewing Night Country here on Rewind of the Living Dead is because I think this is indeed the most horror tinged of all the true detective anthologies. And I mean, we, we might as well start there, Damon, with Issa Lopez at the helm with this uh, kind of this idea for a true detective. I mean, I think I had more scares in this season than all the other seasons combined, because correct me if I'm wrong, Damon, the first season, as much as I love it, is a, is a suspense thriller and a great one. But it wasn't like it wasn't always horror. It sort of had like glints of it. This is a horror season. I would I would I would disagree slightly with the first season. I think the first season is definitely a horror season. I would say seasons two and three were not. Season yeah. one was definitely because, again, I think you get to the nature of the crime in season one, which was that occult murder and yeah. the, the, you're dealing with a cult of, of criminals. And when you really get into the investigation of it all. I think True Detective season one was absolutely a horror season. Now, I do believe that Night Country is more horror tinge than season one, uh, but I would definitely argue season one is also real quick. I just want to point this out as we get going here. We are full spoilers. The season mm-hmm. is over. Um, we're not going to play the you know, as we do at the, the movies because not everyone can get to the movie theater. But True Detective ended on Sunday. This episode is going to drop on Tuesday going into Wednesday. At this point, we hope you've seen it or will see it. So we're not gonna we're not gonna play the non-spoiler game. We are full spoilers all the way through because we're doing a full season review. We're doing all six episodes, just kind of like one mass episode here for us. So just to be aware, if you haven't seen it or you haven't seen the finale, be aware we are going to talk about the entire season, including what happens in the end. So just in case. That being said, no, I would say season one definitely had a lot of horror elements. You know what I mean? The occult murders. The creepy, the creepy killer, the, the the connection to all the different powerful people, the, the the cabal of powerful people in Louisiana. But I think this one, and I think the influence from Issa Lopez, if you haven't seen, not to just repeat what you said, Patrick, if you haven't seen Tigers Are Not Afraid, run to go see it. It's amazing. It's an incredible film. Um, it walks a really powerful line dealing with kids growing up in a in basically a war-torn part of mexico and you know drug we're talking about drug cartels which i say war-torn because that's what kids grow up in when their you know families are subjected to atrocities carried out by these powerful figures who are really above the law 
it is a horror film, but it also deals with some really powerful imagery, some really powerful subject matters, but it's a great film. And it's incredible for a first time filmmaker to come out of the gate and just punch you in the mouth the way that Issa Lopez did. So while I still support, you know, Nick Pizzolatto as the original creator, even though, again, I didn't love season two and three. I liked him. I probably liked season yeah. two far more than the average viewer did. I think a lot of Same. people hated season two. I, I still enjoyed it. And season three, I thought was a return to form. I had a couple of issues with season three, particularly the ending. I didn't love it, but everything up to that point, I really enjoyed. Honestly, season three was great. Yeah. Season four, you know, again, to get into it was great, but it was it was fun to take a different ride with Issa Lopez and her vision. Now, I know just to address the, you know, the elephant in the room, Nick Pizzolatto very publicly said, I had nothing to do with this season. Don't blame me for it because he's basically more or less telling you in a couple of messages on Instagram that he doesn't like it and he wants nothing to do with it. He is listed as an executive producer in name only because he created the show. It's his show, so they have to put him on there as an executive. Even though he's not associated and he doesn't work for HBO anymore, they have to put him on there because legally he did create the series. But he had nothing to do with this, and he is telling anyone who will listen that he had nothing to do with this. Uh, whether I agree with him or not, we'll talk about during this podcast, but he had nothing to do with the show. That being said, I was very excited to see what Issa Lopez did with this season. Now, I I had a slightly different experience with this show than you did, Patrick, because I actually saw all six episodes in a two-day span. I was invited to a press junket where I got to interview Issa Lopez, Jodie Foster, and Kaylee Reese. Let me just say ahead of time, asking Jodie Foster a single question was one of the greatest moments of my journalistic career. I was so geeked out, and I actually did get to ask her about doing Silence of the Lambs compared to True Detective. I had to slip it in there somehow, and I got her to talk about Silence of the Lambs. I was so freaking happy about that. But because I was doing the press junket before the show debuted, HBO sent me all the screeners. So I'd actually seen the full season before it even debuted. Um, I couldn't share that, of course, because it's under, you know, under embargo. But I had seen it all. So I had to kind of go back and rewatch some of the episodes getting ready for this because it had been basically two months since I had seen the season. Yeah. And I just rewatched the finale as everybody else did on Sunday night. You were a huge True Detective fan. I was obsessed with True Detective. Did you have a did you have expectations going into the season? Were you just excited to see something new cuz it had been what like 4 years, 3 years since the last season? Something like that. And I did I did have expectations which is it's HBO and it's True Detective. So I immediately assumed that it's going to be better than other things that are presented to us. And by the way, TV's doing pretty good. I think everything on FX is like very worthy of talking about a lot of other HBO shows are really great. Showtime just had a fucking wild show um, called the curse from a 24. That was, you know, like there's a lot of good shows out there, but when it's HBO, it's on a new level. When it's true detective, I expect an, an even bigger level. That's the only expectation I actually put on these shows. Now adding in Issa Lopez, I went, Ooh, then what I expect out of this season is horror. And man, I got it. Like I was so happy with, the horror aspects of this. And I think like, okay, going back to tigers are not afraid. And I think actually going back to a lot of Mexican filmmakers, th this is something that I think is a through line with uh, filmmakers like Guillermo del Toro and Arritu and, uh, and um, uh, oh my gosh, the other guy, uh, Alfonso Caron, they can make movies that have a very grounded feeling with a touch of magic. 
it's just something with with the Mexican culture and Mexican storytelling. They just sprinkle in a little bit of magic. And Issa Lopez does that in True Detective Night Country. And it was something where I was like, where is this going exactly? I think that was the big thing. And, and we might as well get into kind of the the one of the overarching themes of the show, which is, I think, indigenous peoples. Uh, you and I, I know, are huge fans of a, of a movie called, uh, uh, I think it's called Wind River, right? Yes, Taylor correct. Sheridan. Taylor Sheridan, creator of Yellowstone. Uh, his, I think it's his third movie. He did Sicario. He did um, uh, Hell or High Water. Hell or High Water and then then Wind Wind River. River. Yeah, correct. Wind River is about indigenous people going missing in in these areas that are being claimed by corporations. And True Detective sort of touches on that in a very similar way. But when you get a female director, when you get a director of indigenous uh, background, Issa Lopez has has, uh, Mexican Indian roots, um, I feel like I was learning things on a different level and, uh, and, and, and she, uh, they focus on, on, on the, I think it's an in, I think it's called Inupiat woman, I think is, is, is the way to pronounce that. And this Inupiat culture that is, that is clashing with the cultures of the West, you know, there's a, there's a huge mine there and there's a lot of people that come there to work in that mine. And there's a lot of tension around that. And there is this element of indigenous women going missing, which I'm sure was in, in Issa Lopez's original idea before HBO came to her was like, I want to do something about indigenous women going missing. It is a real problem. It's a real problem in Canada. It's a real problem in America. It's a real problem in Mexico. It's a real problem in in northern territories where indigenous peoples have lived for thousands and thousands of years. When when Western and European societies move in, they seem to disappear. There's a, there's an innate horror to that. And, and it's a horror that you and I can't really speak on. We're not women. We're not indigenous. We don't have we don't have those things hanging over us. And so she creates a, a new environment for me to to witness that is just terrifying on its on its reality face on the on the face of its actual reality. Damon, you go, my God, that's a terrible thing that's happening. Um, and then, Damon, do you want to talk about the other side of the horror, which is, I think, what gets our our police involved, which is this insane eight six or six or seven person murder (laughs) yeah so let me let me real quick i just want to say um the indigenous people comment you made um a lot of people i've seen online comparing the show to wind river and saying it's very similar i would agree in some tone and in terms of subject matter but the subject matter is indigenous people go missing and no one seems to give a shit that's the subject matter and it's sad and depressing and and we need to do better Movies like Wind River and even Yellowstone has done this in their show because Taylor Sheridan has highlighted this in Yellowstone as well. I know you watch Yellowstone, so do I. Um, they they highlighted there as well, but they did it in Wind River. And the reason why people are like, oh, they're similar is because this is a subject that needs a spotlight shine shown on it, and it doesn't happen enough. So, yes, indigenous women going missing is similar in Wind River and, and in True Detective because this is what happens. Women this is a real missing, problem. And no one gives a shit. That's the problem. Like, so let's just, I just want to put it out there, like, on the face of this all, for the people who say it is similar. Yes, it is similar, because indigenous women go missing, no one cares, and we need to stop with that mentality. 
authorities, government, whatever it is, needs to do something about it. Thank you to creators and artists like Taylor Sheridan, of course, Issa Lopez, for bringing it to our attention. Okay, that being said, in terms of the story, the actual plot of the show centers around a group of scientists who work at a research station called Salau Research Station. They've been there for like 15 years researching the permafrost in Alaska um, and basically digging down to the ice cores of Alaska, trying to find, you know, whatever you find there. Like, you know, the, the secrets of the world. Let's just sit in, in the broadest of terms. That's what you're search, yeah. searching for. And the opening of the show shows that these these men are out there living in this research center. And one of them kind of has this like weird, almost like a almost like a hallucination kind of reaction. And lights kind of blink and then everything kind of goes dark. And when we revisit them, they're all missing. The whole place is emptied out. It's just completely gone. Everything, everyone's gone. And when they finally track down these seven or eight scientists, I believe it was eight originally, which we find out during the show was actually seven, which that plays into the plot. These seven scientists are nude in the middle of the tundra of Alaska, frozen to death in what they officially dubbed on the show as a corpsicle. It is a, a corpse sickle. These seven guys are all huddled together, screaming, basically frozen solid, dead in a mass, all there together, frozen in the middle of the tundra. And our police chief, played by the great, iconic, amazing Jody Foster, plays police chief Liz Danver. She is, of course, charged with investigating this, and she ends up running into a former friend, now kind of an adversary, named... Angeline Navarro, who is a indigenous police officer who used to work with Danvers in the police station. They had a falling out over a case that just got them to the point of where they couldn't coexist anymore. And Navarro goes off to become a state trooper. But Navarro gets pulled back into this particular investigation because she believes it ties back to a murder investigation of an indigenous woman that would unsolved and effectively ruined the, the friendship, the relationship she had with Liz Danvers years ago. And so that's kind of where we pick up is this investigation of two very, uh, very uh, uh, opposite police officers, both trying to figure out why these seven research scientists were nude, huddled together in the middle of the Alaskan tundra, frozen to death, how it happened, why it happened, and who did it to them. And can we just take a moment to bathe in the glory of the corpsicle, which got shared like, I mean, if there was anything I saw in consistent in a consistent way on social media for the first couple of weeks, it was the corpsicle. People could not stop sharing this incredible like. I don't know, like, like it's almost like Michelangelo's, like, you know, fucking Sistine Chapel, like these frozen screaming bodies, like all trapped in a moment. It's so it's such a glorious design. And I, I, I'm curious how it was written on the page. I'd love to actually take a look at the scripts at some point if they ever make it out of there. But it's just it was a thing of beauty and it was truly horrific. And that and it's and they show it right there in the first episode and you go oh, we're in for some shit this season. Like, it's not like, yes, this is probably going to be a very grounded situation, but it's going to be horrific. And it starts with that corpsicle, which I absolutely loved. I just went, God, what a what a thing of horror beauty this is. 
Yeah, it reminded me, it looked a lot like, you know, what you saw. It reminded me of The Thing, and I'm not just saying yes. that because yeah. because of being in, you know, the frozen tundra of Alaska versus Antarctica, where that movie actually is supposed to take place. But when you think about when The Thing, when you see all the weird contorted versions of The Thing and the humans that it used to be, that's kind of what the corpse sickle looks like. It's it's it, It's this really grotesque just disturbing image of these seven dudes huddled together, screaming, painful, dying, and they're all together. And it's just, it is, it's, it's like you took seven mannequins and threw them in there with screaming faces and then just flash froze them. It's hard to describe unless you've seen it, but it's disturbing. And you, when you, when you put that at the end of your first episode, you have just set the tone for the entire season because they didn't just murder seven scientists. They didn't just have seven scientists go missing. They had seven scientists flash frozen together in a pile in a screaming, horrific, frozen way to die. Oh, this, it was incredible. And I, I just, it just made me think, cause I think we, we even talked about this a little bit with, um, with uh stranger things it's like some some seasons of television are less horror than others right and we thought uh, we thought our the latest season of stranger things had more horror elements than a lot of the previous seasons same goes for true detective i think the middle two seasons were very very more close to like a standard like a kind of police thriller which uh, by the way i totally liked and i'm totally fine with but just seeing that image at the end you're like oh it's so unsettling it's scary i think that's what i loved i'm like that's scary like it's just scary imagery you know is it making me shake my boots no but boy i can't get it out of my head and for sickos like you and me we love shit like that well it reminds Um, you it reminds you of the first season when dora lang the the murder in the first season you see her huddled down tied at the wrists and ankles bent over hunched over with antlers tied to her head blindfold over her face the spiral symbol on her back I mean, that sets the tone. When you see that that really disturbing image of this poor woman being murdered, same thing with the corpse sickle. You set the tone. Now, again, I would agree. Season two and three, not bad. And season three had a kind of a disturbing image of a couple a kids bit, yeah. dying, but nothing to the level what season one and now what season four have done. I think that's what separates them from being truly horror shows. And another thing that I think came back, at least with a vengeance, because there was a little bit of this in season three, but not a, but almost non-existent in season two was the return of the supernatural element. And I loved what I loved about season one is that it kept you guessing all the way to the end of like uh, about, is this something supernatural? And I think, and I remember the debates, man, that was a fun time when I think Twitter was a little less shitty than it is these days. Um, when people were just like speculating on what it could all possibly mean, they were, they were looking into symbols. They were trying to figure out if it was this monster. I mean, I had people predicting like it's Zool from fucking Ghostbusters. (laughs) Like, like there's something bigger, there's something bigger, crazier happening. We got a return to that in true detective season four night country. And it was so interesting how Issa Lopez and company got into it this time. Cause what they said was here we are at the farthest reaches They're They're in a fictional town called Ennis, uh, Alaska, which is up in the Arctic. I mean, it's, it's so far North. It's basically the end of the world. If you want to call it that they say here at the end of the world, things are different. And they don't mean that like fig literally, they mean, they mean it literally and figuratively is what I should say. The people of this town are like so close to the extremeness of the environment that they're in. And they're so 
I think it's it seems like everybody's very well painted in this in this town as having a lot of baggage coming with them, that they're almost in touch with some other plane of existence. And you go, well, how far are we going to go with that? I would argue this season goes fully into supernatural, whereas in the first season, and I'm going to spoil it for you guys, it ended up not being supernatural. It ended up that uh, Rustin Cole was he took a lot of acid and he was having a lot of flashbacks is what is what was going on. But it wasn't supernatural. They, They didn't come to a supernatural conclusion. This season starts with elements of supernatural. You talk about the flickering lights in Salal Station. When, when that guy is like having what seems to be some sort of a seizure or a vision and the lights flicker and then things happen that are bad. That motif continues on. The motif that people there can see people from uh, that, that are dead and, and they're calling to them or they are directing them is uh, it, it's, it's, it's purely supernatural, but also it's tied to indigenous belief systems, right? So these, these Inupiat people they believe they can see people that have passed to the other side and that those people can help guide them along. So they weave that idea throughout the show, keeping you guessing to as, as to whether like this is indeed a supernatural occurrence or it's not. And it's totally like human related or both could possibly be interconnected. I really like the ambiguity of that. And we'll, we'll get into like the final final in a while, but I, but, but, what I really liked was having a very, uh, I guess, grounded way of of introducing supernatural into this through the Inupiat people. What I what I enjoyed about the supernatural elements of this season, while again I agree, season one hinted at it, and the cult, and not to keep making the comparisons, but the cult at the heart of season one, they believed they were working towards a higher power and trying to reach this mythical place known as Carcosa. And that was, and they were worshiping a God known as the yellow King. Now it all ended up being just this sick, disturbing belief structure that led them to killing children and sacrificing people to appease their cult. But that mention, the sheer mention of that has you thinking this could be like some kind of supernatural ties. And it also was elevated by the fact that Rust Cole, Matthew McConaughey's character, because he had taken LSD and gone through these like these years of being an undercover drug agent, had these like really vivid uh, hallucinations that made you wonder what's real and what's not. The biggest difference with this season is, is that they are they literally show you ghosts there are a number of ghosts throughout every episode like every and, yeah. and they mention it like they say like some they they say ghosts will come to you for one of three reasons they'll come because they want to reconnect with you they'll come because you forgot they want to tell you something or they're coming because they want to take you with them now that specific mythology set the tone right there because from then on out, when you saw these ghosts, you had to question, were they there because they missed you? Were they there because they had to tell you something? Were they there because they're trying to drag you to fucking hell with them? Yeah. That sets the tone. Now, also what I loved about this, though, is when we do see the ghosts or we do see the people who are seeing the ghosts, they have a specific connection to the people they're seeing. This isn't just moving into the haunting of Hill house. And there's a ghost living there. These are people connected to the people they're seeing. So once again, there's a supernatural element. There are ghosts, but it's left up to the interpretation of the viewer 
whether or not these ghosts are real or these are just people seeing what they want to see. There's a situation in this in this season where Angeline Navarro's sister has mental health problems and she's desperately trying to protect her, but her sister is kind of teetering on the edge and spiraling downward and struggling. And at one point, Evangeline puts her sister into a care facility with hopes that that will help her turn things around. Sadly, her sister escapes, goes out in the tundra, and basically dives into the frozen water and dies and kills herself. It's a very sad moment in the show, and it profoundly affects Evangeline Navarro. Now, her sister reappears to her later in a vision, and in that moment, you might question, is this real? Is it really a ghost? Is her sister actually back to visit her? Or is this the guilt of her feeling like she could have done more to help her sister or she didn't do enough to help her sister? And I love the ambiguity of that because you don't know. It's left up yeah. to you to decide. Now, me personally, as a guy, I'm not turning, I don't want to turn this into a philosophical debate. But I, as a person who doesn't actually believe in ghosts, I appreciated that they left it up to that imagination. Like yes. Liz Danvers, Jodie Foster's character was pretty clearly a non-believer. She didn't believe in any of the supernatural bullshit throughout this entire series. She was the 100%. This is just a case of six, seven people dying and somebody caused them to die. And I'm trying to find the murders. She didn't believe in any of the other stuff. She kind of, you know, you can kind of see a roll in her eyes when a lot of that came up. Yeah. She never really had the experiences with the ghost because she didn't believe in it. But the people who did, Rose, Navarro, so on and so forth, they had that belief. They had that that tie to a person that came back to them. So even me as a person who's like a non-believer, I can sit here and say my interpretation was it was just these people's connection to the people close to them who loved them, and that was their way of staying connected to them. And I get that. I understand that. I also understand the Liz Danvers character who... She didn't have visions of ghosts. She has had visions of horrific nightmares of her past life where her kid died, which continued to haunt her. They weren't ghosts visiting her. They were just memories coming back to haunt yeah. her. So I didn't take it as these were actually ghosts living in our world. I took it as these people were being connected to the people they missed or connected with. But my justification of saying that is if you, Patrick, said these are ghosts and they're coming back from a spiritual plane and they're crossing over into our world and visiting their former loved ones, I'm okay with that because that's the that's the interpretation that I enjoy about this season of the show is that neither answer is right, neither answer is wrong. It's so smart to do this. I did, and I did my best to kind of look up as many people's opinions as I could before we got to this podcast. Some people were very frustrated with the non-answer on that and you nail it on the head the reason it's smart to do the non-answer is to leave it open to interpretation because indeed that's how the real world works when it comes to the spiritual realm i've never seen proof of a ghost and neither of you i would i would classify the both of us as non-believers um but i will have people in my life tell me no i heard them call my name I saw them there in the kitchen. Now, I can't tell them, no, you didn't. I, I, it, I wasn't standing there with them. I didn't see any of it happen. It doesn't matter. And in my interpretation of things like that, it's like, yes, you have this incredibly deep connection to that person and you manifested it the way you manifested it. But on their side, it's like tangibly real. So to be able to like uh, 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 present that in the show in a way that like makes sense. Like, you know, if these two worlds colliding is like, it's a feat of storytelling as, as opposed to some, some people who are like, Oh, why didn't they explain that? It's really frustrating. It's like that, but that's, 
that's a great way to like to to synthesize to to synthesize the real world that we live in which is some of us believe in some of us don't and then and then on top of that like have there's and they lace it throughout it again that indigenous tradition where they believe that that is those things are actually important and that you need to be connected to them so that it was very that to me that whole aspect of it was very fascinating and it also lent to the horror elements of it too because Let's let's face it. I mean, I think both of you and I have suffered a lot of serious traumas in our lives and a lot of people who listen to this show have there are images that can't get out of your head. There are images you will always see. And then the way Issa Lopez represents them on screen is horrific, but it's also very there's a lot of humanity in it because you go, I know why she's seeing her sister in that way. I know why she's remembering her mom from those moments talking about Navarro's character. Uh, Her mom actually suffered mental illness as well, and it seemed her sister was going down the same path. So it was bringing up all these emotions and stuff. It's very emotionally, like, sophisticated storytelling that just, uh, to me, that element of it was, like, it knocked it out of the park. Yeah, and and again, I know, I'm not, listen, we always say this on the show. You and I have an opinion, and we give our opinion. We're a review podcast, so that's what we're here to do. But we always tell people, judge for yourself, right? Like, because we like or don't like something doesn't mean you're going to like or dislike that. We did an Alien 3 review a couple weeks ago, and I put up clips on TikTok. I had some people saying, I loved Alien 3. I had other people saying, I fucking hate that movie. And you and I were were pretty positive for the most part of that movie. But again, not everyone's going to agree with us. True Detective this season, the reason, again, I'm I'm just pointing this out, and I'm not telling people they're wrong for feeling frustrated at the lack of answers in that regard. My justification, my one explanation I would put out there, and I think you'll agree with me on this, Patrick, is that while True Detective is tinged in horror and it is a a, a thriller mystery, mur- murder mystery show, we're not watching The Haunting of Hill House. We're not watching a show that is steeped in it being a ghost show, a haunted house show. This is a show about a murder mystery tinged in that horror tinged Mm -hmm. in that indigenous uh, belief structure, which you talked about with, with the, uh, with the people we're talking about in the show. We don't, we don't like, I'm not, I'm not of that culture. I'm fascinated to learn about it. Yeah. I love learning. Like seeing the show was educational for me and learning about these, the people's culture was educational for me and their belief structure was educational for me. So I'm not saying you can't be frustrated. You are absolutely, it's your own right to be frustrated. I'm not saying you shouldn't be frustrated because I wasn't frustrated. But I'm trying to explain it that this isn't a show meant to be a ghost story. This isn't a show meant to be, you know, uh, The Fall of the House of Usher. I don't know why I keep going to Mike Flanagan shows. They're horror shows. (laughs) But they are shows meant to be supernatural. We know they, they are that. You go into The Haunting of Hill House. It's called The Haunting of Hill House. You know it's a haunted house show. That's not what True Detective is. Now, do they do they do they hint? Do they throw you know clues in there that it could be? Sure, but the reason they're not smacking you over the head with it is because the end of this story was never going to be a ghost rose up from the grave and killed these seven scientists. That was never going to be the story they were telling. No, if you've paid attention to True Detective over the years, they always are out there to solve a real <laughs> crime, and there's a real solution to whatever happened. They have it. They sometimes it's more satisfying than other times. But at the end of the day, they go, "Okay, we found out who killed these people. That's that's it's called true 
detective. They're mm-hmm. looking for true crime answers, right? They're detecting on true crimes and they do that, but they, but they sprinkle in that little bit of fantasy. They sprinkle in that little bit of horror. Why? Cause it's fun, Damon. And mm-hmm. let's just fucking have fun. Like, mm-hmm. it, it, like I go on the ride. You talk about expectations earlier. My main expectation is show me what you got. That's the big expectation for a guy like me. Um, let's talk about characters for a second, because if anything in True Detective that is has been true each and every time out is that there are very compelling characters. Damon, this season, I would argue, comes right back to the first season's form in its own unique way. They, it wasn't uh, uh, Liz Danvers, played by Jodie Foster, and Evangeline Navarro, played by Callie Grace. They are not like carbon copies of Rust, Cole, and Marty. They're not. They're completely different than those two cops. But their dynamic is the kind of dynamic that you can latch onto for a season of television. These are people that, as you said in the beginning, they were at all, they were they were once partners, and now they are at odds. That in and of itself is compelling, and it's kind of mysterious why that's why that's happening and what happened. There, there was a, there was a a case that they worked on together. And the way the guy died is a bit mysterious. And then you, you can pretty easily put together what happened there. But you never really understand the fallout from it. You just get the interactions. You're kind of coming. What I like to say when in writing is you come into the situation a little bit late. You come in and it's already boiling. This pot is already boiling over. When, detect, when, when Trooper Navarro comes back into Liz Danvers' life and she's got this huge murder case now on her hands, she's the last person... She wants to see. She doesn't want to see Navarro. She's got eight dead people as far as she knows. What do you want, Navarro? We hate each other. I think this is connected to a, to, to this case, this woman, um, Anne Kautok, I believe is her name. Annie, I think Annie Kautok's murder, I think it's connected to this murder. And I, I, think there's, I think there's plenty of evidence to agree with that. And she's like, I don't want to fucking work with you. Like that, just that initial setup is like, I don't want to work with you, but I will begrudgingly do it. Because if you think it's going to solve this cold case, I, you know, my job is to be a good cop. So I'm going to be a good cop here, but we're going to hate each other the whole way through. I love that dynamic, Damon. You want to break down your character, your, your characters. And I mean, come on, this is it's really important to True Detective that your detectives are compelling. And I think these two are incredibly compelling. I love also I want to mention real quick. You, you talked about connecting this to the Andy Caltuck murder um, that Navarro is convinced this is somehow connected because it was an unsolved murder and it played a part in the relationship between Liz and Navarro breaking down because it never went, it never got solved and, and basically became a cold case and Navarro never wanted to let it go. And Liz basically had to say it's not getting solved. So we have to move on. Um, what I loved about that initial meeting of Navarro and Danvers, and then it continues to pepper out to the first couple episodes, is something that reminded me so much of season one when Rust Cole was convinced that the murder of Dora Lang was not the first. This was connected to something in the past, and this was not this guy's first murder. So he started searching and looking for other examples of similar crimes in the past, trying to find evidence. And there's a great part where Marty Hart, they're sitting there having food, and he's like, uh, you're not finding evidence, you're finding conjecture. You're finding, you're, you're creating a solution to a problem that doesn't exist. You're believing that this guy was a multiple serial killer. Now, in the end, Russ Cole was right. You know, he proved his he proves his theory. But what Marty said in that moment was true. You're not you don't have proof. You're, you're you have conjecture. 
you're creating an answer to a question that we can't solve. So you're trying to create a, a narrative to prove what you're th- what you think the theory is. That's kind of what's at the heart of Liz and Navarro's problem is that Navarro is convinced that Annie's murder is connected to what happened at Salal Station. And Liz is like, you have no proof of this. There's nothing to connect these two things together. Now, much like Rust and Marty, we find out it absolutely had something to do with this. But again, I love that dynamic of like the hardened, kind of bitter, just old school cop, Liz Danvers. And then you have Navarro, who is a little distrusting, a little jaded, just kind of bumps up against the system. She's the rebel cop in a way. Like she's not the one who works within the confines of the law. And she's getting these, in fist fights with dudes in the, in the yeah, middle of the night. I love yeah, that like, part. Yeah, I mean, just you know, she's just like you know, she's not the one. She is not the one. She's like the rebel cop who doesn't have a partner because she can't have a partner. She's yeah. uh, she's Nick Nolte in Forty Eight Hours, where they're like, no one wants to work with this guy. Um, but that 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 dynamic between them is so good and. Listen, you don't need to. We don't need to sit here and, and we're going to talk about best performance in our categories. We can just go ahead and start praising Jodie Foster right now. She's incredible. But the way she plays this character as this like hardened, like she is a cop through and through. Like she, yeah, she is dedicated to her job. But you can also tell that she's gone through some shit. Like she's seen things that you shouldn't see. She's been through things you shouldn't be been through, and. I, I maybe this might maybe my interpretation's wrong, Patrick, but like she's it's almost like I'm sick of this shit. Like I want to oh, solve very. this case, but I'm just over it. I'm over all this. And so and then you got this you got Navarro coming in who is just gung ho to solve the crime. And she wants she wants answers and she's willing to do whatever it takes to get there. Whereas whereas um Danvers really is about following the breadcrumbs. Now she gets a little bit more and more obsessed with the case because the more breadcrumbs she follows, the more threads they get pulled and the bigger this web grows connecting this murder. Then you add in characters like Peter Pryor, the young cop who is the son of the former chief of police, his dad who basically got bumped down out of his job for Danvers to take his role. And so that guy played by John Hawks is clearly bitter and angry and not happy with the world because he used to be the chief. He's no longer the chief because he probably wasn't very good at his job. And so Danvers basically took his job, but now he's got to answer to her. Yet you can see that power dynamic throughout the entire show. He never wants to answer to her. So he's just very much like, you know, whatever. Like, you're not going to tell me what to do. I'm going to do what I want. I'm going to go where I want. I'm going to see what I want. Fuck you. Is more or less what he does throughout the show. Right. So you introduce him and then you introduce Peter Pryor. Peter, the younger son, is conflicted because he's got a young wife and a baby, trying to be a dad, trying to be a husband, but he loves his job and he's very much Danvers' boy. Like, he Mm -hmm. wants to please Danvers. Now, they introduce, is that like a mother-son relationship? Is there a little sexual tension there? Is it almost like a Mrs. Robinson thing going on there? They never, they never fully tackle that. They leave that simmering tension throughout the show. Like, what is their relationship? You can tell Danvers kind of treats him as a son, but Peter, you could kind of tell, like, he's got a little bit of the, like, you know, he's maybe, maybe he's not looking at her as like mommy. He's thinking about her in another way. <laughs> Different kind of mommy situation. 
And then you got Leah, who is Danvers' stepdaughter, not even her real daughter, her stepdaughter. She was married to a, to the father. They had a kid. The kid died in a car accident. And basically, Leah is left with Danvers as her stepmother. And Leah is rebellious. She is trying to get more involved in the um, uh, uh, the actions against this mine, which everyone believes is polluting the, the 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 polluting the area, polluting the people. And so she is very much an activist, taking on a role similar to what Annie Kaltuck did. That also got Annie Kaltuck killed. And so Danvers is trying to pull her back and being like, "Don't embrace your indigenous roots. It's going to get you killed." But yeah. Leah is more or less like, "Fuck you." You're not indigenous. You don't grow up. You're not. You're not part of this culture. I'm going to do what I want. I'm going to be a. I'm going to be an activist. I'm going to speak out against these people. So there's a lot of dynamics of the different characters you're working with in this show, and they all mesh together really, really well. You can see the dynamic between them throughout the series. And I do love uh, uh, speaking on Danvers and how she's so abrasive to you know any of the supernatural ideas any of the indigenous ideas at one point um uh, uh, uh leah has the the the, the indigenous uh, traditional painting on her on her chin she's, she's like wipe that shit off like she's doing it in such an abrasive way but if you look right under the surface the subtext of it is she's terrified that her stepdaughter is going to meet the same fate that annie Kautok met you know, she doesn't res- she definitely on the surface does not respect the indigenous culture at all. She doesn't give a shit about it. It's kind of in the way of her job. That's how she sees it. But deep down as a mother, just she can't help herself. She's she's trying to protect her in the fucked up way that Danvers can do it, which is like, I'll just scold you and punish you into listening to me because I'm scared to death that you're going to meet the same fate. She's not stupid. Danvers is an incredibly smart cop. She knows that Annie Kautok definitely died with circumstances regarding the mine and regarding the Salal station and regard. She knows it's connected. She doesn't quite know how she doesn't want to know how kind of she's just sort of like, uh, you know, best best not seen and not heard. And I just and I just I don't want to lose another kid. I lost a kid and I don't want to lose this kid. But she does it in her fucked up way because Danvers is fucked up because so much of what gone what has gone on before the events of this show are baked into her characters fantastically crafted character and that's work that um jody foster will do and isa lopez will do and writers will do to kind of to this is why this is elevated tv right i don't believe in elevated horror i'm just saying like extra quality on top of quality the expectation i was looking for you see it in a character like danvers that is incredibly compact complex that is abrasive, that is hard to deal with at times, but none of that is for no reason at all. She's not just shitty. She's not just angry. There are reasons behind it, and they unfold in in all many different types of ways in certain degrees. I thought another complaint I saw was that the middle episodes were they they called them slow and sagging, and what's the point? Well, it revealed so many of the dynamics that were going on and why it made sense that all this stuff was connected. And you learn that Danvers has a pretty serious past and and she's been put in that position to be the chief at Ennis for a reason. She's she's sort of been um, what do they call it? uh, um, Exiled to Ennis. You know, she's a troublemaker. She, she sleeps around and she's proud of it. She's she slept with probably every man within sleeping rage age, uh, sleeping rage age. Um, 
she, you know, and, and that gets her into trouble. She doesn't have a lot of women friends because of that, because she's sleeping with every man she can possibly sleep with. That's just one of her many little dynamics, but it gets in the way of the case. It actually matters to what's going on. She slept with this guy and this guy's connected to the oil or to the, to the mining company. And that matters to why the mining company's trying to cover up stuff. Like it all connects, but it's all character work, which is what you're looking for. Navarro, on the other hand, is, is definitely, um, I would say a more subdued character, uh, a character that is that is and has internalized a lot of stuff. She's she's quiet. She's stoic. Um, she has a lot of anger. She carries a lot of anger. You see it. Um, she's also a mixed race. You know, she's not just pure indigenous. She's 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 mixed as well. And that changes a di- that creates a dynamic between her and the indigenous people there. She doesn't have her um, her spirit name. I, I don't know if I'm getting the exact terminology right. But when all, all these other people have been given their their actual Inupiat name, she doesn't have it. That's going to matter throughout the show. That's going to pay off throughout the show. Um, and it led to a lot of interesting speculation I was seeing online. You know, what will her name be? What will what will her name be when they reveal it? And it turned out to be something that was, you know, I think more subdued and more character focused than it was plot focused, which I liked. I actually appreciated that. People thought it was going to have something to do with something big supernatural and like she was going to turn into like a a, a sea goddess or something like that. It's like, that's not what True Detective does. If you were expecting that, you're just not paying attention. Um, So I really loved how different these two opposing forces were, you know, with, with Danvers being super abrasive and Navarro being abrasive, but in a totally different way and for totally different reasons and with a backstory that's just as complex and just as interesting. Um, it, it left it, it for me on the character side. Um, I, I, everything was fulfilled for me. Now, I don't know how you feel, but I just feel like these characters were so well fleshed. They were, they were very rich and very fleshed out and very felt very, very real, which is kind of the point. You want to have real characters that you can relate to or, you know, have conflict with. Uh, before we get to categories, Patrick, I want to touch on two last things, uh, and then we'll get to categories. One, let's get into this right now, which is the ending of the show. And I've heard yes. a lot of people, there's been so much debate over the last you know, 48 hours since the show ended, what people thought about the ending. Now, I've heard some people, Alan Seppenwall, I believe is his name, the, the writer from Rolling Stone, says the best True Detective finale ever. I disagree with that, but that's what he said. I've heard other people saying, I feel like I wasted six hours of my life and that ending totally ruined the show for me. Let me just lay out narratively how the show ends and then we can discuss what we took away from it. So the investigation into the death of these scientists leads them back to Salal Station where they find out that the one guy, one scientist named Clark never actually died. They find out that the eight scientists was actually seven. When they pried all the scientists apart and the frozen bodies became thawed, there was one scientist missing and they finally track him down. And it was, he was hiding in an underground cellar below the station that leads into a series of ice caves where they were invest. They were digging out this permafrost. They were doing their, their studies. He was also the guy who had dated Annie Kaltok, and he had brought her to the station. He was her boyfriend. They were together, all these kind of things. They're convinced that he must have done it. Like, he must have had something to do with this murder. And so they they take him to Slough Station. They, they, they question him. They more or less torture him in a way. They tie him up and make him listen to Annie's death 
rattle as she's like as she recorded herself as she's being murdered on her phone they make it they make him listen to this over and over again for who knows how long trying to get answers in the end what it all turned out to be was what's this investigation uh, you know basically uh reveals is that the indigenous women who used to work and clean and 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 you know basically take care of the station for the scientists they were there to clean cook do all the menial jobs for these scientists, they discovered proof that the scientists were responsible for Annie's death. Annie found out that the the, uh, the, uh, science station was responsible for the mines polluting the area even worse than had been reported. They were covering up the numbers and actually asking the mine to feed more pollutants into the ground, into the water, because they were getting better results in their permafrost investigation, their permafrost studies, trying to find this mystical answer to the world, this thing that could help solve the world's problems. They were getting closer to this answer by the mines polluting more and more stuff. So they were covering up the numbers, but not because they were working for the mine. They were actually, they were actually, in, they were actually telling the mine to pollute more. And so Andy discovered this. She wanted to uncover it. She wanted to reveal what was happening. And the scientists killed her for it. And they cut off her tongue as a message to basically say, this is what happens when you cross us. But again, they didn't do it. No one ever knew. Well, they there's did. a debate about the tongue thing, but go on. Well, the tongue thing was done by uh, John Hawk's character. He cut it yeah, off. That's yeah. The, yeah, that's what we believe. He happened. dumped the body and covered it up. Anyways, that's getting off topic. So. Annie was killed by these scientists and Clark was never the same because he actually loved Annie. He actually cared about her. And so he was never the same. And he was the guy who was constantly haunted saying she's coming back for us. He was convinced that Annie was going to come back for them from the spirit world or whatever. And so that's what we see in the opening of the episode. In the first episode is when things start going weird, he thinks it's Annie coming back for them. In reality, it was these women who used to work for them as, as cleaners, as, as janitors or whatever. They figured out that the scientists killed Annie. When they figure this out and they tell the story, you never actually know. You know, they never say they actually did it, but we know they did. They broke into the station, kidnapped the scientists at gunpoint, dragged them out into the middle of the tundra, made them strip down and took off all their clothes. They laid their clothes down in a pile and they said, we're leaving you here and you basically fend for yourselves. You're going to, you're going, if you're going to survive, you're going to have to do it on your own. And this is your punishment for what you did to Annie Kaltuck. And the scientists ultimately didn't grab their clothes. They went into full on hysteria and, and um, hallucinations due to the hypothermia. And that's how they died. So the big answer at the end of it all is that the indigenous women took revenge on the scientists for killing Annie Kaltuck. Now, that all gets covered up. We never find that out because Liz and Navarro figure it out. They figure out the crime and they go to the indigenous women and they say, we know you did it. And they tell them the story and they say, well, you know what? It's just a story. And we're just going to have this case is going to stay unsolved. And so when they go back and we see Danvers talking to the um, we assume it's like the police from the Anchorage who show up to ask questions. She lays out the proof of what they discovered, but not who was actually responsible. The one big hanging question at the end was Navarro 
goes out into the wild and they never really reveal what happens to her. Did she die? Did she live? Is she a ghost now? And so that once again is left up to interpretation. A lot of people I saw online were really pissed off yeah. about that. What happened to Navarro? Cause they never say, they never tell you she just left and started a new life in Arizona or something. They just right. show her as like, you know, they show that Jodie Foster and her daughter are close now and they kind of put their, their trauma behind them. And Jodie Foster's characters kind of moved on with her life and everything's kind of back to normal. But whatever happened to Navarro, that's really the hanging question at the end is, did she die? Is she still out there somewhere? They just kind of leave that up to interpretation. Did I explain that fairly well? Yeah, there's one thing I I did want to correct. The case doesn't remain unsolved. What happened was, is on the flip side, which is the mine, the mine knew what their part in all this problem was, which is they were creating more pollution so the scientists could get their work done, and they know about the body. They actually orchestrated with uh, with um, uh, Hank Pryor to to cover up the the murder so they could keep the they could keep everything rolling. So when they send the bodies thawed back to Anchorage to the uh, the the uh, forensics out there determine they died in a flash avalanche, right, which is something that's actually happened in history. They actually brought it up. There was hikers in Russia that died the same way, but it all looked strange. It looked like they'd been attacked by something. And so so uh, the, the the guys that are kind of above them go, this case is closed because they don't want it revealed. The, the cops, uh, the, the cops above them and all that stuff, they're keeping all this shit hush hush because they're all compl- they're, they're all uh, complicit in, in what happened. So they shut down the case fully and they just tell Danvers it's done. The, the forensics say it's an avalanche. So it's an avalanche. Those guys weren't killed. Your case is over. Goodbye. And when they finally figure out what happened, they go, well, we could take all these women to jail, but they technically didn't kill these guys, according to their story. There's no evidence that they killed these guys. And the corrupt fucks above us say the case is closed. These women sought justice. These cleaning women, these women that nobody sees, these women that are invisible to society, including people like Danvers, including people like Navarro. They see them as less than, but those women knew there was a pattern in what we talked about in the beginning, a pattern of indigenous women going missing and nobody doing shit about it. So what did they do when they found out what it was? They said, we're going to do shit about it. And because the corrupt people above them said, case is closed, Danvers and Navarro could wipe their hands of the situation. They just needed the, I guess, the um, the confirmation of what actually happened. They didn't, they didn't want to be, they found out what happened to Annie Kautuck. Now they wanted to find out what happened to these guys and they got their answer, but they didn't need to punish these women because these women sought justice for something that was never going to get justice. It just wasn't. This thing goes too big. There's too much corruption. It's always going to get swept under the rug. So they found their justice and they didn't technically kill these guys. They sent them out to the forest reaches of Ennis and said, let nature decide. Being, will you be able to survive the cold? Probably fucking not. The nature will take you, right? But but in their mind, the spiritual realm took them. The karmaic uh, justice served the scientists who brutally killed this woman. So I just wanted to clarify on that little part of there. Um, I found it to be a very satisfying ending. Um, to me, I think, you know, because I think the original theme was like indigenous women go missing and no one gives a shit. And that it was an indigenous women taking justice into their own hands because they knew 
nothing was going to happen to me was a very satisfying ending to some people some people hated that and i go like I, I saw a lot of people just confused they were like why didn't she arrest them and i'm like well she doesn't have to and they technically didn't kill these guys so she can't get them on that technicality she can get them for sending them out in there but she's got no way to prove that they died because of what they did she's got no way to prove that so she just goes okay well some women got their justice for once and some people believe me there's a there's a lot of it seems to be a lot of guys out there that don't that don't like that ending well also remember the other one thing i want to point out is that before clark dies so they basically torture clark in the station trying to get answers out of him and at one point danvers goes to take a nap and while she's sleeping navarro continues to interrogate this guy cleans him up and basically says he wants to die he just wants to be done with it all he's done he's he wants to die he wants to just kill himself and be done with it all he still regrets and feels guilt over what happened to annie and all his friends are dead he just wants to be done with this world so navarro basically says i'm going to clean you up and i want you to read your confession into this video and then i'll let you go and that's what she does. She lets him read the confession into the video, and then she lets him go, and he goes out into the station and basically dies the same way as his scientist friends. He freezes to death out in the middle of the tundra, and Danvers is all pissed off because she thinks he's the key witness to reveal who actually killed this. This is before they discovered that the indigenous women did this, and she's pissed off. Later at the end of the series, we re reveal that clark's video gets released and in that video he tells the world what actually happened at the station that it was That's the mine right. it was the mine polluting everything and creating stillbursts and all these horrible things were carried out and they didn't give a shit and the scientists the research station were covering it up and actually telling them to pollute more so they could get better results in their studies and so that was all revealed through a viral video more or less that got released and so the police asked danvers well how did this video get out there she's like, i have no idea she yeah, knows damn well where it came from but in her she's like i have no idea it's just out there like it got it got it got released i don't know where it came from uh you know we you know we we, we were investigating we don't know where it came from it just got out there and so you know that's kind of how it ends like everyone everyone gets their just desserts in a way the mind gets shut down that's right this, yeah that's re right research research session is shut down and the indigenous women got their revenge on the people who killed Annie. And of course, you know, and then, and basically at the end, even Clark got his cause he died alone in the tundra frozen to death. Uh, and that's basically the ending. Now there was one oh, before hold that thought, Damon, I just wanted to also give you my take on Navarro missing. Cause I know that's, that's a bit of a hanging Chad, if you will. Um, I do think that what it was, was her, coming to terms with the spirit world because she was kind of wrestling with it i think throughout the she 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 could see it and it seemed to just trouble her more and more and more as the as the series went on and i think her taking that walk out there <coughs> was uh was not unlike when the women sent sent those uh scientists out into their out into the nature she's going you know nature's going to tell you what the final product is i think it, that was navarro saying i'm going to let the nature and the spirit world, et cetera, tell me what, what my future is. And I think she needed to disappear and go, like it just, it's purely my interpretation. I've got no evidence to back it up, but I interpreted her ending as she goes off in nature, survives it and is able to obviously plant that piece of evidence. That's a very important key piece of evidence and the little polar bear to remind 
uh, Danvers that indeed the spirit world can help us and can guide us. And, uh, and I think she lives a life of anonymity. I think that's what she wants. And I think, I, I do think she lives her life out, you know, uh, living with Danvers, wherever the hell they live somewhere, somewhere out in the, the farther reaches. Yeah. Cause at the end you see the moment where Danvers is, is like in the sunshine. Now it's like, cause they were in like the eternal night part of the Alaskan winter when there's yeah. no sunshine for so many days, very much like 30 days a night. Um, at the end, they're kind of like back in summer where the, you know, the sun's out, the snow's melted, and they're kind of like on a deck hanging out together. And a lot of people were kind of like, what does that mean? Like, did Navarro survive? And I took it very much like you took it. She went out, found her way in the world, found her, found her indigenous roots and kind of embraced that. And then she came back. And now her and Danvers are back to where they were years ago. They're friends, they're comrades. But Navarro is no longer in the police force. She's just and again, Navarro was a, a was also a soldier before they have flashbacks of her dealing with like the trauma, the PTSD of being a soldier at war. And so now the way I interpreted it was that Navarro and Danvers are friends and they're just together, much like with her daughter. You know, they're just like part of it. They're all family now. Like they're all part of the same family. Yeah. They've all kind of accepted each other, their roles in each other's lives. That's the way I took it they all, as well. All three of them needed a family too, right? You know, they were all kind of like, they were all kind of missing family and they all found it with each other. Yeah. So now let's get into the part of the show that really, really, really bugged me to no end and clearly for this first part of the podcast, if you've listened to this, if you're here to this point, you stuck around. Everything's been pretty positive. You and I both really enjoyed this show. It was well acted, well directed, well written. And the ending didn't bother me nearly as much as it seemed to bother a lot of people. But there's one aspect of this show that bothered me to no end. And let me just get it off my chest right now. Please. If you go back to the original trailer for the first tease of true detective night country i know you hate trailers but i love a good trailer right at the end of the first trailer they show navarro and danvers walking into a building and shining a light on a giant spiral symbol now if you are a fan of the first season of true detective your antenna exploded upwards because that spiral symbol was a huge part of the first season of truth. It was the moniker. It was the mark, the symbol of this murder cult that Reggie Ledoux belonged to that Errol Childress belonged to. That was all connected to the, the, um, uh, the, uh, the family, the, um, uh, Tuttle family, Tuttles, yeah. the Tuttle, the powerful Tuttle cabal, they were all part of this murder cult, this this sacrificial murder cult that killed children. And all, for hundreds of years, we have to imagine they were doing this in Louisiana. That symbol was tattooed on Reggie Ledoux. It's the symbol they painted on the back of uh, Dora Lang when she, they murdered her. It was uh, scarred in the back of Errol Childress, the actual murderer, the, the big bad, the, the man with the scars. Um, the big bad at the very end of the series, he had it like, he had it basically like uh, scarred on his back. Very, very, very huge part of that show. So right away, if you go back and look at my website, Nerdcore Moon, when I started writing about the show before I'd even seen a day of it, I was like, this connects to season one. They're already teasing it. It's happening. Then in the first episode of the show, we meet a character named Rose. She's a friend of Navarro, kind of like a, almost like a spiritual guide in a way to Navarro. They're friends. She lives out in the middle of nowhere in the tundra. And she mentions 
that she had a conversation with a ghost who is her ex-boyfriend. His name happens to be Travis Cole. He died of leukemia, but he comes back and visits Rose every now and again. And that's where Rose gives the speech about the spirits come back to you for three different reasons and all that. Didn't take very much for sleuths as myself to figure out that Travis Cole is Rust Cole's father. If you go back to season one of True Detective, he mentions his da- his father's name was Travis Cole, or they actually say it to Rust. They say, your dad's name was Travis Cole, and he says, my dad died of leukemia. It doesn't take a genius to figure out that Rose's boyfriend was Travis Cole, was Rust Cole's father. So that's connected. Boom, right away. Okay, there's another connection. Then as they're investigating the Salal Research Station, Peter's job is to find out where the money's coming from because they believe this could have been some sort of act of revenge or something to do with what the research scientists were doing. Peter, through his investigation and digging into it, he finds out that they were funded by a shell corporation, and he finally tracks down the main benefactors of the research station and the mine. And it's a company called Tuttle United. There's that name, the powerful Tuttle Cabal of Louisiana. Holy shit. It is this this cabal, this powerful family is influencing even in Alaska. And then that symbol, the spiral symbol, comes up over and over. It was tattooed on Annie's back. Huge paint on the top of this uh, trailer that, that Clark had out in the middle of nowhere that they discover. All these symbols, all these different things, and you're like, we're going back to Carcosa. This is somehow, they, they laid so many breadcrumbs that this was somehow connected back to season one of True Detective. When I was watching this in, in a binge, I didn't watch it week to week. As I said, I got to see him early. At the end of the fifth episode, I can't remember the exact moment how it ends, but I remember when the fifth episode ended, I looked at my girlfriend, Taylor, who loved the first season as much as I did not. She's not as obsessed as I was, but she loved it. And we looked at each other. We're like, we actually, people might be like, dude, you shouldn't have gone this far with it. But in my head, I was like, dude, Matthew McConaughey is going to fucking appear in this last episode. He's going to come out and that's going to be the big revelation that this is tied back into those, uh, that occult murder. And he's going to continue and finish his investigation all these years later. He's going to pop up because they laid so many breadcrumbs in the end. It meant nothing. (laughs) None of it meant anything. The spiral, yes, the spiral, they said, is a symbol of indigenous people, and it's a warning sign. If you see that symbol, it means bad. It means evil. It means bad, and I get that. Uh, The Tuttle United thing was a nice hint, but it really meant nothing. I mean, they were funding it, but they had nothing to do with, I mean, could you say they were behind uh, the pollution there? I guess, but again, they didn't, you know, it wasn't like we saw. It's probably one of them, one of their many like things that they spend money on and it, make money on. It had nothing to do with like the Tuttle family, like right. the Cabal. No Carcosa, like, yeah. None of the, none no of the murder King. rituals. Yeah. They weren't coming up there to kidnap children, to kill them. None of that. No. And the, the Travis Cole, yes, it was Russ's father. We know it was Russ's father, but really it was just like a nod. He was just there. Yeah. Patrick, let me tell you, none of that was necessary. And the reason it made me so angry is because you laid so many breadcrumbs hinting at a connection to season one that when it doesn't pay off, and I saw a million TikTok videos, I saw a million things online, people saying this is Carcosa, it's the Yellow King, it's the Tuttle family, holy shit, it's connected, blah, blah, blah. 
And let's be honest, this is also to blame HBO. They used it a ton in the marketing. They wanted you to believe that this season tied back to season one. In the end, it didn't at all. Nothing mattered. That spiral symbol, while it technically you could say it was evil and warded people away, and yes, maybe that's what the, the Tuttles corrupted and used it for their symbol in their cult. They could have used any symbol for that. It didn't need to be that spiral. You know what I mean? Like They could have done anything with that. My biggest complaint is that, is that it didn't connect. It didn't mean anything. It had no, I mean, yes, Travis Cole was, it was a ghost in the show. And yes, that's Russ's father, but it really meant nothing. It could have just easily been Travis Tritt, the fucking country music singer. Cause that's all <laughs> it mattered. I don't care that it didn't connect to season one. I don't, I didn't need, like they had a little hint of that. They dropped a breadcrumb in season three when they said, do you remember the two hero cops who were investigating a cult and they were trying to connect the murdered children in season three and they briefly mentioned rust and marty and they showed a newspaper every true detective season one fan clutched our pearls thinking holy shit they're going to bring it back it didn't it meant nothing in the long in the lungs in the big scheme of things same thing here the reason i got so angry is because you laid all the breadcrumbs you gave all the teasers all the hints and it meant nothing now to be clear, I don't care that it meant nothing, but don't put it in there. It didn't need to be there. I understand you're trying to pay homage. You're trying to like, you know, basically say, I love the first season. So let's inject elements of that. Issa Lopez, I adore you. You're an incredible filmmaker. The tone and the, the, the evolution of your show was enough for me to believe it was an homage to season one, your characters, your development, the, everything you did was a closer interpretation of season one than anything since then. Even what Nick Pizzolatto, the creator of the show, did in season two and three. You didn't need all this other stuff because all it did was give people like me that are a huge fan of season one think there was going to be some weird payoff that this somehow was connected to season one and it meant nothing. And it just, it left a bad taste in my mouth because it just didn't need to be there. I would have loved this show from start to finish if everything was the same except the symbol wasn't the spiral, the guy's Travis name was Travis Johnson, and... The, the the company running things was, you know, uh, you know, uh, I don't know, like, you know, Meghan Markle United. I don't care. I didn't need it to be connected. Don't do that. That made no sense to have all that in there. Damon, I'm going to counterpoint because I feel completely different about this. I think and I I count myself among rabid season one fans. I really do. Uh, yeah, I, I didn't. I, you wrote about it and all that stuff. I didn't. I didn't. But I I adore the first season. I think all the fans should be thanking HBO for including this in because ever since the first season, people have been begging for some sort of connection to Marty and Rust. They've been begging for it. They, I'm sure what they did was saying, how do we incorporate something into this season? So it's a nod to the fans and what they want. But the internet gone internet. Now, Damon, you're much more level-headed than, than your average internet shit poster by a lot. This is what happens when you give people on the internet a sprinkling of what they want. They just hate it. They get mad about it. Truth be told, if Russ Cole popped up in the final episode and saved the day, that would be absolute horseshit. 
it would it would it would it would uh it would uh devalue all the work that Danvers and Navarro did and all that stuff is like here comes Matthew McConaughey to save the day like a fucking superhero. It would that would have sucked. That actually would have been a very shitty ending because it it it's clearly like a just a Deus Ex Machina like none of none of the story we just watched mattered because all that matters is that Russ Cole comes to save the day cuz let's just be honest everybody loves Russ Cole. We just want him back. I get it. There's probably a myriad of reasons why you can't bring Russ Cole back. Nick Pizzolatto might own the character, right? I, there's a lot of things that you might not be able to actually physically put Matthew McConaughey on screen again. But I also think it's just a total cop out if they did that. So I'm glad they didn't. What they did was they gave us sort of a shared universe, which every internet fan is dying for when it comes to movies and TV series and stuff like that. They want it to all connect. They want, they, you know this, they want the Tarantino-verse. They want everything inside the Tarantino-verse to be connected. And at some point, I think Tarantino has like obliged people and been like, yeah, that happens to connect with that and all that stuff. But he's doing that for the fans. So when, when and, and I was, and, and, I, and I watched a lot of the videos you sent me, it was all pure speculation. People were like, one guy was like, this is the proof. This is all the proof we needed. Carcosa's back. And I was like, there's no proof. <laughs> there is zero proof that Carcosa's back. You just, you just are seeing the symbol. And the way I interpreted it, and this is purely interpretation, is that what I got out of the symbol was that I found the origin for the Carcosa's symbol, where they got it from. They clearly had done business up here in Ennis. They clearly helped put this mine together. They put the money into it. And when they were up there as conquerors and colonials and, and, and invaders tend to do, they find indigenous stuff and they latch onto it. As you said earlier, they co-opt it, they corrupt it and for their own gain, right? The Nazi symbol is a, is a, is a Buddhist symbol of peace. And they went, cool, we like that, we'll take that. And all of a sudden, that Nazi symbol is only associated with the Nazis. Occultists have done it for, you know, ad nauseum since the beginning of written history. They take pieces of ancient culture and they co-opt it. It's no mistake that the ice cave that we find has this incredibly preserved uh, fossil in it in this spiral. Clearly, the people of this particular part of the world hold that sacred. They say there's something about that's incredibly sacred. That spiral represents, uh, you know, some sort of pattern that everything turns in on itself. Everything is connected. Everything is. And they get into that, too. And so they found that piece to be sacred. Well, the scientists, they also were digging in those caves for things that they want to learn about. And uh, and then they start co-opting the symbol. The Tuttles co-opt the symbol. It's all just sort of part of the same shared universe. I didn't need Carcosa to come raging back. I didn't need the return of the Yellow King. I didn't need any of that stuff. But what I got instead was just, oh, there's a richer history to the true detective universe. And they gave the fans what they want. And the, the fans just were like, no, what we wanted was Rust Cole. What we wanted was the Yellow King. And you're like, damn it, I can't, I can't, I can't please any of you people. Well, and again, my complaint is that it just wasn't necessary. Like, don't put because that's no, what happens. No, I, I hear you. You raise the expectation. I hear you, you, yeah. you, you, you raise the expectation by 
by dropping these little breadcrumbs in there and saying, ooh, this is here. You don't do it by accident. It's all in there for a purpose. Like, you know, yes. they're doing it. And, and when I talked to Issa Lopez and I asked her about the influence of season one in this season, she said, this is a love letter to season one. Now, yeah. a love letter can mean a lot of things. A love letter can mean just the tone of the show. I think she nailed the tone of the show. She oh, yeah, nailed the tone definitely. of the characters. The tone of the, all of that is great. But much like, and I, I would, and I, if I ever talked to Nick Pizzolatto, who I, who I think is an incredible writer, I would hold his feet to the fire the same way about season three. Why did you need to put in that little breadcrumb about Rust and Marty? Because it meant nothing, and you're just, it, you're just making people anticipate that this somehow connects back to see when they did that. It was an investigative journalist talking to Mahershala Ali's character, and she's like, "Have you heard this story about these two hero cops who discovered an occult?" murder ring or murder cult you know is this connected to your dead children from 1980 or whatever now every huge true detective fan had the same reaction holy shit this is that that cult is now connected to this show it wasn't it meant nothing it had no right. connection and i would tell nick pizzolato the same thing don't do that because nick pizzolato was asked multiple times would you ever do something else with that character russ cole and he said, sure, there's a possibility. And Matthew McConaughey has gone on the record numerous times. It's one of his favorite characters he's ever played. He would love to revisit it if there was ever a version that he could do and get back into the body of Russ Cole again. Everyone loves that first season. We all, we all acknowledge that. But it's an anthology. It ends. End it. Be done with it. Move on. Second season didn't connect at all, and I think people expected it to be the first season, and when it wasn't, it pissed people off because it wasn't a cult. It wasn't, you know, it was a, it was a, a show, the second season was really about a story about money and corruption. It had nothing to do with, like, occult murder cults or anything like that. It was yeah. just money and corruption of this little city in California. The third season once again teetered on the edge of this, these children being murdered, and it kind of felt the tone was there. The investigation that lapsed over all these years, different time periods. Okay, you you got the model back. And then they dropped that one little nugget in there about the question about, is this connected? And I'm like, why would you do that? Because everything else about that season was perfectly done. You did the time jumps. You did the investigation that lasted from 1980 all the way through 20, whatever year they ended it in. Like, all that stuff was there. That was all perfect spot on. The the model of True Detective had been followed to a T. And then you made the mistake of throwing in a newspaper and saying, could it be connected to this cult back in 2012 that these hero detectives discovered? And we're like, no, because then it went nowhere. <laughs> Same thing here. Didn't need to be there. You had the tone, you had the characters, you had the plot, you had the story, you had everything right, and then you had to drop in these little breadcrumbs for nut jobs like me, who loved and, <laughs> and obsessed me. over that first season. As I said, I have no problem with the story, I have no problem with the ending, I have no problem with anything in this season except that one thing, because you laid those breadcrumbs and you and you made it important to the show. You didn't just say... Okay, Travis Cole's the one element that you kind of like. It didn't really. You could if they just included Travis Cole that he was involved with Rose, that would have been fine because he really played no bearing on the show. He was a ghost, and he just happened to be involved with yeah. Rose and happened to also be Russ's father. That could have been the one, and that's all you had to do. End it there because he had no consequence to the show. But then you pepper in Tuttle United. You pepper in that spiral symbol. And then in the final episode, you decide to have Clark utter the words, time is a flat circle. 
Stop. Just stop. Don't do but it. See, because Damon, it- I, I, but see, here's the thing is that fans were clamoring for it. And I, I guarantee you, it probably wasn't in Issa Lopez's first draft. Or, or at least in the first discussions before she started outlining it, I guarantee you it was HBO going, hey, the fans keep asking for a real connection. No, Issa, Issa has said it was her idea. She peppered these Okay, well, fair enough, she, right? Yeah, yeah she but did I mean, it, yeah. Of course she did it, but like, you know what I mean? Like, it's her idea, but also they were, they were probably like, hey, can you make up an idea that will connect to the first? That's what they mean by this is my idea, meaning people are nudging like going, listen, our fans are... True Detective Season 1 is a phenomenon in television. A true phenomenon. I would say Lost, Game of Thrones, Breaking Bad, and True Detective are true phenomenons in television. They transcend the entire medium, and the world is just like, these are the coolest TV shows that ever existed. Okay, Lost, shit the bed at the end. But my my point is, is that they were so incredibly formative to the television-watching audience. And so what was planned as an anthology it it outgrew itself because people were so obsessed with with the story that was being told that they said like and they were so disappointed that season two was nothing like the first season at all the studio takes notes nick pizzolato takes notes they go okay 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 they really want something from that they're giving the fans what they want and that's that's what's frustrating about it for me is that you can't please the masses Either you give them a full connection to Rust Cole and he comes roaring back and then the fans will complain about that. Trust me, there will be people who will just go, that was bullshit. Why did you do that? And then there's fans on the complete opposite end of it going, why did you even bother to tease us? Which is, I think, where you're at. You're you're way more level-headed than like everybody I saw on the internet, by the way. Everybody on the internet was losing their fucking minds, but they were sounding rather stupid. They didn't have a real good argument. You know, your argument is like, it was too much of a tease to not pay it off. And I, I just interpret it different. And we're talking, we've talked well, about me, this through the whole podcast. Go let ahead. Me throw, let me throw out this one thing. You said something because the Tarantino verse, and I would agree. And Kevin Smith does this as well, where the characters are connected. Right, and, right. Yeah. But the verse. Yeah. Those, those connections are just almost like fun little nods, but never, they never play a role in the actual story. Like Vincent Vega is related yeah. to you know is related to uh mr blonde's character or whatever you know he's vic vega they're actually brothers and they mentioned that and little things like that little names right. and things like that are hinted and same thing with kevin smith the girl who julie dwyer who dies in clerks gets mentioned as the character who who has died at the beginning of mall rats who kind of sets the entire chain of events off it's all connected in that way, but not in a consequential way. Like it's just very, very tertiary, very like surface level where I would compare what they did in true detective because again, Russ Cole's the word Travis Cole's the exception because he really meant nothing. That's the one that you could have peppered That's in there. That's the thing I would have kept out to be honest yeah. with you. Well, I would have kept like, Travis the, Cole out and I would have kept saying, the spiral in, but I'm saying Travis is the one thing that didn't matter. Like you could have said, Oh, right. Travis Cole. And it was like, Oh my God, it was Russ father. And that's the end of it because he was in one episode and it just happened to me. Then he was Alaska. Okay, fine. Whatever. When you pepper in that the whole place was funded by Tuttle United, we understand what Tuttle is, and you put in the spiral, which is 100% tied to the murders of all these people in Louisiana, 
the time is a flat circle was kind of a cheesy line. It didn't need to be in there. Little cheesy, but also they're both quoting Nietzsche. I, I mean, it's not that's not a, that's not crazy, but again, it was a little corny. It was a little, a little corny. corny. But those two things in particular, the spiral and the Tuttle United, because they specifically tied it into the story, it doesn't pay off because. That's where I'm talking about the connection. It didn't need to be there. You could have used but, any okay, symbol. Can I counter could, this? Well, can well, I hold, counter let me, this? Let me, let me finish. <laughs> let me finish. This, the way I say it's not like the Tarantino-verse or the View of Skewniverse is because imagine if like everyone's complaining right now about the Marvel Cinematic Universe, but imagine if at the end of Avengers, sorry, spoilers, t- 10 years after the fact, <laughs> at the end of Avengers, you go into that post credit scene, Loki gets defeated, they took away the ter- Tesseract, they saved the world, and that post credit scene, the big reveal is the man behind it all, the guy who orchestrated this whole thing was Thanos. Now, comic book fans like myself, who has a freaking Infinity Gauntlet <laughs> tattooed on his hand, were like, holy shit, Thanos is the big bad. This is a game changer. This is amazing. Now, imagine if they revealed that in Avengers and then Thanos never appears again. He's not the big bad. He has but no I don't relevance. think that's comparable. No, what I'm saying is, is like you've 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 injected it into this, and now he has no real relevance. He was just like a post credit scene to appease the fans. It played no relevance whatsoever in the rest of the series. My point but I don't is, think it's comparable here. Well, no, what I'm saying is it's connected. If you do the Marvel Cinematic Universe, you connect all these different pieces, but you yeah. don't pay them off. It's going to piss off the fan base. The reason why Avengers Infinity War and Avengers Endgame did so well is because it paid off everything they had worked towards for 10 years and 20 some odd movies. It all paid off in those two movies that finally worked. The reason why the current Marvel Cinematic Universe is failing or some people are upset is because it's not connected. It doesn't feel like one cohesive story and it's just all kind of like mishmashed together and it's not been very good. And people are like, this isn't making any sense. But everything in everything in all those Marvel movies paid off in Avengers Infinity War and Avengers yeah, Endgame. Yeah, it was, it was all one... Really, it was just Iron Man and, and Winner Iron Man and Thanos going to clash. That was the long game. Kind that, that of. That truly was... Because it, was it started Avengers, with Iron was, Man and it ended with Endgame. We're getting the into the weeds. <laughs> well, my point being, it was all one grand story. And then it, it yes. paid off in the final two movies. Now, a big part of what's going on right now is people are complaining that it's not. It feels like, what are you doing? Like, are you leading to our story? Because this isn't doesn't feel connected at all. My point being with True Detective, going back to it all, is like this isn't just na- this isn't just mentioning a name. Like Danvers grew up in uh, in in uh, Louisiana, and she used to work for the Louisiana State Police. That would have been a nod you could do, like, oh shit, she probably worked with Rust Cole and Marty Hart in those days, or something like that. Or again, the Travis Cole of it all, because it's mentioned he's re- he's involved with Rose doesn't play any part, but those two key elements. Tuttle United being behind the mine and the and the uh, and this research station, and the spiral symbol, which again I understand your interpretation of it just being something that the Tuttle's corrupted, but even that's not explained. You're just you're 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 taking that's my interpretation. Yeah, yeah. But that symbol made it seem like it had something. Now we can all say it's a red herring, which is what it ultimately was. It was all you know. We all we all got got right. All all of it was a red herring. Yeah, Yeah, all it was. But again. If it doesn't matter, don't use that stuff. Use that's where I disagree. I think it does matter. It It, it matters. Well, the symbols totally mattered to those people. 
uh, the 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 Inupiat people. So but it did matter. It mattered to them. It, but it's 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 a symbol they made up for True Detective in season one. So it's not no, like but, it's a but, they, but my point is is that they made it matter here. They made it matter it in the in the here and now. It they didn't. Did. They didn't tie it back to that. But it didn't matter. It was just a, it was the spiral symbol meant to tease people that it was connected to season one. Yeah, when sure. It just, it because that's just what people a, wanted. But that's what people wanted. But that's what I'm saying. You're missing the point. It's you don't need to use that. If you use that symbol, you are teasing people that it's connected to the spiral that everyone but, knew. But it is connected. But it is connected. It's not because there's it, no. It, they, but no, but it totally is. It's not. Where where in this season did they mention the, the cult murders from uh, season one? They because they mentioned the Tuttles. If they never mentioned the Tuttles. You got you actually have a point, but the fact that they do mention the Tuttles makes me go, ah, the Tuttles were here. But you're just you're you're just guessing at that. They didn't tell but us I'm that. Not, I'm not guessing. They tell you that they funded this thing. It's not a crazy leap. It's not even it's not even a hard logical leap to go. Oh, the Tuttles been here. They're clearly like they come up here to suss the land and whatever. They want to own the land and shit. They 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 ingrain themselves in the culture up there and they go, oh, we like that symbol. We'll take that back with us. And so what you're getting is a weird little origin story for that symbol. But, that's but all they were the, trying to do was drop a little bit of something for fans to go, hey, you know, I know I know this was like such a big deal in season one. Wouldn't it be fun if we showed you the origin of it? And fans go, no, I don't want to see the origin of it. No, it's because like, well, we just tried something for that's you. That's not. But see, you're interpreting it as that. That's not necessarily the way I took it. Like, yes, I understood. They were I trying guarantee to. that's how it that's how they make the leap. Maybe. But but again, it's like not said, a hard leap. <laughs> it's not. I, but, it's, it's but a very they, it's a very okay. small jump. When they revealed the Tuttle United thing in the third or fourth episode, whenever it was, when Peter does that, it's done at the very end of the episode. It is done as a cliffhanger to tease that it's connected to season one. The big spiral used in the trailer and used throughout the series, they did it over and over and over again to make you think that it was tied back to the first season. That's my problem. You keep peppering it in there. And I don't care. Listen, I know your t- interpretation, and maybe you're right that that's the interpretation they want you to come to the conclusion that the Tuttles corrupted the symbol. But they don't tell you that. You can just say you're making that leap and assuming that. We don't know that. We just know that it's a symbol that is like a warning sign. And that's all they say. They don't ever connect it. And when they do the investigation, when they investigate the spiral symbol, when Peter's looking up what it means, they never find that would be. Listen, you are the worst investigator in the history of investigators. If you look up that spiral symbol and that's not like the third thing on Wikipedia, that that is the symbol they found in this occult murder series. Because imagine, if you will. True Detective is a real story. Imagine season one is a real murder investigation and the door laying and then 17 years later that they finally catch Errol Childress as a killer. Imagine that. Now, this is all in the internet age. That would be a Netflix documentary. That would be a Hulu documentary. There would be a thousand articles written about it. It would be on on every, it would be one of the most well-known cases ever written. It would be right up there with Manson and Bundy and all these things. We would, everyone would know about it. Even if you don't know about it, you kind of know about it, right? The fact that they did the investigation into the spiral and they're like, what does the symbol mean? And he's like, Oh, it's an indigenous symbol. That means uh, evil. It's a warning. He looked on the internet. He's like, he couldn't find anything at the beginning. 
it would take two seconds to figure out where that they would be in that. That's what they, if they wanted to connect it, if they wanted to say it was corrupted by the Tuttle family, he would have mentioned that they found it. Cause you'd find that in two seconds. That's but you like don't the have most, to hammer people over the head. My point is, is you're taking it and saying that that's, I, I appreciate that that's how you took it. But that's right. again, but they're not, they don't say that's the reason they don't tell well, because you that's why, the why make this season all about but, them. That's my point. Why does it matter? Why did it need to be in there in the first place? Just to give fans a little something. Let me ask you a question. Would the series have changed in any way, shape, or form if it was Johnson United was the company and it was a weird A-like symbol, whatever, and that was the symbol of these indigenous people and it meant a warning? Would anything else of the series have changed? No, and that's a good thing. Okay, and yeah. if the Travis guy's name was Travis Johnson, would that right. have mattered? Somebody right. totally different. Yeah. Do you see my point, though? Nothing yes. else changes in the series. Yes. That makes but my you, point. But you pepper in these little elements and you make people like me <laughs> being like, oh, this has got to be connected. And then when it doesn't pay off, it's like, why bother? Why? This put the, is I understand why. You, I'll tell you why. I'll tell you why I bother. This is why I have always insisted that studios never listen to the Internet. They did this. They, why did, you're asking why. Why did they do it? Just to give the fans a little something. Just a little something to connect back to the most beloved season of television. I don't think it backfired at all. I don't think it backfired at all. I, I don't, how? How did it backfire? Do you not see the reaction on the internet of people who were like convinced? I don't this give was- a shit about the, Damon, uh, the only opinions I care about are my wives and yours. <laughs> and truth be told, the but- internet honestly is a, is a dumpster fire. It no, truly no, is. I, I mean, I know I, you agree with me on that. I understand. I understand that, but I'm saying like the fan, the fans who are going to watch this show, fans are the ones who are going to tune in and watch this show. I've seen a 50 50 split of people who are like, this was amazing. This is incredible television. I loved it. And then the other half of the people and most of it is connected to the love for season one saying the payoff was harsh shit. I didn't like it. What was the point of all that? That was the ending. I can't believe that's what you did now. As I've said, I'm not going off on the cuckoo end of things, and I'm not saying it all sucked. <laughs> That's all I, I liked, could find was either cuckoo or they liked it. <laughs> I liked the series. I liked the ending. I don't mind the ambiguity to the ending. I don't need you to just hammer me over the head. Now, you know, because you have gone a little further down the uh, A24 ladder and made it more confusing, it would have irritated me, maybe. But this oh, yeah, didn't they could have done that. This didn't do that to me. But as I said... And this, this is, you got to agree with me on this, Patrick. You say, don't try to appease, don't do the whole fan service thing. Don't try to appease the internet. It will Yeah, because it turns into this. And that's <laughs> not what because I'm saying. Of, not because of anything else, because people aren't grateful. But that's, when they give you a little something, people no. just go, I didn't want that. I wanted something else. But that's <laughs> what I'm saying. This is, this is where you should be agreeing with me on. Don't, if they didn't do this, if they didn't try to appease fans in any way, or Issa Lopez, and again, I don't know that it was them trying to appease the fans. Issa Lopez said she injected elements of the first season on purpose because she loved the first season. Yeah, what's wrong with that? Again, my point being, why? What does, but why not? But also, my point is also why not? Like that's the problem is that I think the internet has sucked the joy out of just enjoying something. Like just enjoy that there's a little bit of connection to it. But people are like, no, it needed to be this, and I'm like, that's just your expectation. 
they're just giving you something to enjoy but people people don't want to enjoy it and that's what's maddening about it it's like as a creative you go well let me write something in there because i know how much i love the first season like imagine if you and i were given the keys to true detective season five and they go okay it's it can't be a rust and cole story but um you know if you want to do stuff wouldn't you want to sprinkle stuff in for fun i'd want to if i was going to make it consequential to the story if it had some relation to the no, story. But that's what I'm saying. They're saying you can't make a Rust and Cole story. No, no, you can't make a Rust and Cole. But again, this didn't right. it, again, when I was like in my head thinking, oh man, Rust Cole's gonna show up. Now again, I understand the whole Rust Cole saves the day. I wasn't even going that far. I was just saying like No, he was I know you were some people. He were. was going to yeah. he was going to play some part in like the here's the connection to this thing and here's like my help and then Danvers would solve yeah. the crime. That was my idea. But even without even without that, like even if it's not the Rust Cole of it all, like just them realizing that it was this connection to like the Tuttles were involved. It's this evil corporation that ties back to this cult accusations of Louisiana, whatever they did that, that little bit of a payoff. But again, none of that mattered. And I understand it's a red herring. You're trying to get people to like yeah. look one way. You try to look and get them to look left. So you can go right. I understand all that. And they did that throughout the first season of the show. They had you thinking it was one thing and it wasn't. And they had you thinking the case was solved and it wasn't all these little things. I understand all of that. Um, but again, it just, it, it serves no purpose to put it in there. If you're not going to have it pay off in some form or fashion, imagine, and this is, again, I love the movie, but there's a reason why so many rabid Halloween fans hate Halloween three. Cause imagine if you saw Halloween two, one, Michael Myers, Halloween two, Michael Myers, you go to Halloween three and Michael Myers isn't there. Now, everyone involved with that movie, John Carpenter on down says, if you would have just made this movie called season, the witch people would have probably loved it. But because yeah. you called it Halloween, people had the expectation that Michael Myers was going to show up. Now that film eventually became a cult classic because a lot of fans came around and understood the genius of it. But every other Halloween movie ever made, has something to do with Michael Myers, except for that one. And it's like the it's like the bastard child of the Halloween series. Right. Some people like myself absolutely love it. I have the freaking mask hanging out behind me. I love Halloween three. But in nineteen eighty four, whenever that movie came out, the oh, expert lost their fucking minds. Yeah. Imagine making a movie called Nightmare on Elm Street and Freddy Krueger doesn't show up. Imagine making Friday the thirteenth and Jason Voorhees. But, imagine wait, making on. an ep imagine hold making on. a season of True Detective that has nothing to do with Rust and Cole. Hold on. That's season two. Hold on. Season two is your hold season on. of the witch. Let me finish. Let me finish. They set True Detective up from the day one as an anthology. Yeah. Season one is over. We move on. Now, did season two pay off the way people wanted? Because it it wasn't even that it didn't tie to see. We knew it wasn't going to tie to season one. They told us that. Season one's over. Those characters are gone. They said that from the very beginning. People knew this was an anthology. Sure. And so it wasn't that. It was the tone of the show was different. It was a completely different style of detective show. And people didn't like it. And it was, it was kind of convoluted. And it did get a little confusing at moments. And again, I like season two. But I can understand some of the criticisms. And also, Nick Pizzolatto, not to like rehash history, he actually said it has to do with the occult history of the transportation system. And, and it had <laughs> yeah. nothing to do with that. And you're like, what was that? What was that about? Anyways. <laughs> And then season three goes back to the True Detective format, which, again, was great. The time jumps, different multiple different time periods, the investigation of the last years. That's the homage to season one. And then that whole newspaper thing, again, why? Just It doesn't need to be there. I understand you're trying to, like, appease fans. Don't yeah. do that. Don't do that. And so 
that's all I'm saying. That's uh, last thing I'll say on that is just yeah. I would I would have appreciated it more if they didn't do that. If they didn't try to appease fans, and that's where I'm saying you should agree with me because you're I saying 100 should... percent agree with don't bother appeasing fans because you will never exactly. Appease them. And that's what I'm saying. It served <laughs> all the all the hints to season one didn't pay off, served no purpose, and all it did was I disagree with that statement. But go on. All it did was lead people to think there was some connection to the first season, whether it, whether it was ultimately like a Russ Cole mystery or not. I don't even care about that. Just right. that you laid all the breadcrumbs that it had some connection to the first season and it meant nothing. So that's why I said I would have been everything. Every feeling I have about this season would be the same if it was Travis Johnson, Johnson United and uh, a symbol instead yeah, of a spiral yeah, symbol. Yeah. All this, the series would all be the same. I would love it and enjoy it, enjoy the ending, enjoy the story, enjoy the plot, all of it. But I don't, I don't need that. If you're not, if it doesn't actually, if it doesn't, and this is TV, this isn't real life. Like this yeah. is TV. You're doing it for a purpose. You're putting it in there for a purpose. You put it in the trailer for a purpose. Every single article written about that first trailer, True Detective, there's hints to season one. It ties oh, sure. to season one. They did it on purpose to get everyone souped up. And, and there are up. ties to season one. Yes, the Tuttle, the Tuttle family. Okay, it's not the sexiest tie to season one, but, but it's it, a tie to season one. And what I liked was that it made the sim, it actually lifted the um, sort of the ominous nature of that symbol and said, so more often than not, these symbols of fear are usually co-opted and corrupted, as you put so brilliantly earlier, by bad actors. And then so what I got out of this was, oh, that symbol actually means something so much more important than what those crazy killers in Louisiana were doing with it when they were fucking just geeked out of their minds on fucking meth and shit. And they liked the stem- they symbol and they just took it. So I was just like, oh, cool. Like this symbol means something more. That's how that's my interpretation. Purely. But again, and again, but, I'm not. But it's I'm, just a great way to enjoy a little bit of a nod to the first okay. season as opposed to be mad about it. To go back. I'm just I'm not trying to repeat myself. Just saying <laughs> if you're right, if you're right. And that's what it was supposed to be. OK, fine. Let's say that's it. And I'm not saying you're wrong. I'm saying you probably are. Sure, and I'm saying it's my level, interpretation. In some level, you're probably right. Because when I say that earlier about like they co-opted and corrupted the symbol, you're probably not wrong about that. Then go back to my point about Peter Pryor investigating it. When he's investigating the symbol, he should find that it had something like, that oh, would sure. be the, like that. That would be like, see, again, not to I'm not trying to be, be aware. I'm, I'm using symbols as like uh, 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 the story here. So uh, not right. trying to be insensitive. You mentioned the swastika earlier, what it originally was and what it became when the Nazis took it. Imagine finding that symbol out in the wild and someone says, boy, I don't know what that is. Never seen that before. And you look it up on the internet. Boy, I don't know. I can't find this. This is an ancient Buddhist symbol. You're you're just you're you're basically saying we're stupid. Like you're dumb for not again, if this was real life and this is actually connected, like this is a whole universe, that spiral symbol would be synonymous. Like right, every it would pop up, they'd the, find the, it the Netflix, and they'd go the Netflix, on the computer and be like the Netflix documentary would have a spiral at the center and say the Russ Colbert. Totally, totally. So But I think does, the reason that But they do I think the, the reason they don't go Peter Peter looks for it and he's like, I can't find anything with this symbol. Yeah, yeah. They, they could have done that better. But uh, again, think about it like this. If they would have put the scene in that you're talking about, then they would have had to keep going down the Tuttle line. Let me tell you how they don't have to do that. And this would have appeased me. This would have been this answer. Hey, 
uh, Chief Danvers, I looked up that symbol. It was actually found in a bunch of occult murders back in Louisiana in the in the mid nineties, and again in the early two thousands. Some cult people used it as a symbol. But then I continued to do my research, and it actually goes back much further to the indigenous people of Alaska. They used it in tribal times uh, as a warning sign of whatever. You just explained away the whole reason it was connected. They, you, they just, the fact that it was there. And if you actually add that little bit of dialogue saying, Oh yeah, I found it, but this isn't that what that is. This is actually goes back further. Then it plays into your point. They corrupted it. They co-opted it. They used it for their own sure, nefarious yeah. means. They just but didn't the fact, take one extra line of dialogue. But the fact that they actually said he investigated it and couldn't find it is uh, there's no. Sure. Hey, you they, had to go, that line. they had to go to a local and the local's <laughs> the one who's like, oh, I know this symbol. It's a, you know. <laughs> yeah. I mean, listen, he could have tweaked that. You could have tweaked that line and I wouldn't have been mad about it. And you could have left out the time as a flat circle thing. I wouldn't. The show is not perfect, but I like what they did. And. I'm just saying from my side of things, it was nice to have a little homage to the, like, I don't need it all to connect. I don't need it all. This is, I'm just different. That's how I but am. If they, if so they left I, I was out, just if, like, Hey, this is nice. But if they left out all that stuff, would have made the series any different for you? Like, no, did you, but also, did you, it, but also did like you, it was a fun addition, but did you enjoy the series more because that was in there or did it yes. matter? Oh, no, see, I, I enjoyed it more. I had hundred yeah. percent enjoyed it. And that's the reason I didn't enjoy it. That's the reason at the right, end I was yeah. like, yeah, I, mean, I liked because it. Because everybody's but, different. Everybody's yeah. different. But that's my, but yeah, that, no, it what, did. It did add to my enjoyment because I go, oh, cool. Like it's all connected in this fun little way. And I just enjoyed it. You know what I mean? But like, but not everybody can enjoy it. Okay. That's fine. And I was the opposite. I'm like, why did you even bother? Like, why put this in there if it's not going to be? Because they made it consequential to the story. The spiral played such a huge part in the story. The Tuttle United being so involved. It wasn't like they just mentioned, like, they could have been driving down the street and the laundromat was named Tuttle United. And that would have been the, that would have been yeah, the they could have owned the whole town, you know, yeah, or whatever. But the, yeah. the fact that they made it so, like, they did this huge investigation into who funded it. And when you reveal it's Tuttle United, Everyone's going to assume, oh shit, this is somehow, that's the same Tuttle family. Again, I understand what you're saying. It's the red herring. I get all that. But again, yeah. it just, it just, and there's it multiple seemed, red herrings in the show too. And yeah. it just seemed pointless to put that in there if it didn't mean anything. And again, my point being is yes, I know you say you enjoy it more because it's in there, but it wouldn't have changed the show had it not been in there. No, and totally. that's my, it was that, it was just something for the fans and boy does does that backfire not because it was wrong but because fans can't love anything they well, have no, to and i'm not talking about you specifically because again you come at it from a much more like a logical standpoint fans just have to hate what you gave them it's like a gut reaction now on the internet they just have to be mad about it and i'm like Man, that was cool, but I guess I'm alone. Like, I mean, I'm not alone. You're right. It was about 50-50. Some people liked it, but with, with the tiebacks, I was like, that's cool. It's just a nice nod. I'm on this other story with Danvers and Navarro. I'm not really worried about Rust and Cole, which is actually, I think, a good quality to this show is that it makes you go, I don't worry about Rust and Cole. It's about Navarro and Danvers. And so it was just a nice little tieback, and I just enjoyed that. I'll, I'll say this one last thing. We got to get to categories. We are going way too long in the subject. <laughs> um, my girlfriend, who really enjoyed season one, she's never gone back to rewatch it. I've rewatched the first season. I'm not kidding, at least eight times. When I get so bored and there's nothing so on, I'll put on the first season of True Detective and watch it again. I obsess. I love that show. 
absolutely adore that show. She she loves this. She enjoyed the series. She cracks up when I quote it. Like she enjoys it. I have T-shirts. Like she, but she's only ever watched it all the way through one time. But she loved it. And when she saw the stuff in the first, in this in the season, she had the same reaction as me. Now my girlfriend's not. She was not obsessed. She didn't rewatch it. She didn't do her own investigation. She didn't go out and buy uh, Robert Chambers' book called The King in Yellow because there was some connection to the Yellow right. King, which I, as a freaking weirdo obsessed fan, did back in 2014. I went and bought Robert Chambers' book called The King in Yellow because I thought it was going to give me some answer about Carcosa. Did it? No. Did I see the relevance of like why it was in there? It's because they mentioned Carcosa in the book. Sure. But it really meant sure. nothing in the in the grander scheme of the show. But I was like, man, this has got to play some part. And I was I was way invested. She wasn't. She enjoyed the show. She loved it. Enjoyed it. It was over. She's not really thought about it since 2014. But she is a very casual observer and just a fan had the same visceral reaction as me, which was why bother what like it didn't serve any purpose and she wasn't i again i wasn't like when it was over i didn't say fuck this series i'm done with it i just <laughs> said i like this show i liked everything they did with this show but why did you even bother putting that in there if you're going to try to tease it and then just have no payoff whatsoever it just it it's it what it's what you say when you try to create fan service more often times than not it creates more problems than it solves. And that would be my only criticism. My only real criticism of this show is don't do it because you're trying to appease fans or you're trying to like give them a little bit. This is me and you agreeing here. When you do that, you're more than likely just going to piss them off even more because you don't yeah. give them what they want. <laughs> I Yeah. I'm very much in the camp of don't listen to fans because there's no way to please them. There just isn't. Um, yeah. I appreciated the nod. Some fans didn't and that's fine. Yeah. So anyways, we got to move on. That was a really long conversation, <laughs> but I knew what, it would be. I knew it was yeah, coming. We were going to get into that one because we knew going into this that I felt one way and you felt another. Mm-hmm. Um, let's get into best performance. People at this point are like, holy shit, I need a fucking drink after hearing these two go back and forth. <laughs> I hope you're taking like a five hour road trip. <laughs> yeah. Right now. I hope you're in the middle of this and you're like, Jesus Christ, this show is going to be longer than the fucking episodes. Um, Let's talk about best performance, and I'm going to spoil it here, Patrick, because there are only two. I mean, listen, the show was great. The casting was great. Everyone on the show was incredible. You know, I think I've mentioned on the show before, at some point we've done a show with John Hawks, I think, and I love John Hawks. I'm a big John yeah, Hawks fan. Yeah, he's been in other stuff. Great character actor. Um, but the show really came down to two people, Jodie Foster and Kaylee Reese. Kaylee Reese, who is a former boxer, a professional boxer, a championship-level boxer, who then transitioned and now is into acting. She's still boxing, by the way. She's still got a boxing career, but she is now acting. Let me start there. Yes. You're acting opposite Jody, and her name, by the way. I know people, just so you know out there in the world, her name is Jody Foster. That's not really her name. Did you know that? That's not a real name? I mean, I figured she had a stage name. Yeah, her real name is Jody fucking Foster. That's her name. Okay, she, <laughs> she's That's Jody. Right, yes, Fu- Jody fucking, fucking is my middle Foster. name. Yeah, she is a force Danvers of nature. middle name also fucking. By the <laughs> <Yeah>. way, <laughs> Jody fucking Foster. She's a force of the force of nature. Two time Oscar winner. One of the greatest living actors in the world. And Kaylee Reese has been in like one thing, <laughs> one yeah. movie. And she gets cast opposite Jodie Foster. And here's what I love about this. She holds her weight up against Jodie Foster in every scene, every interaction, 
every moment in this show. That to me was probably the most impressive feat of acting I have seen because there are actors with awards on their IMDb pages, on their Wikipedia pages that cower in the face of that kind of talent. And they'll ad- openly admit it that I could not, like I struggled to face that I was opposite acting opposite Jody fucking Foster. Kaylee Reese didn't blink. She didn't, she didn't wince. She didn't, she didn't flinch. She was every bit Jody Foster's equal in this show. And do you realize how freaking hard that is to do? It's almost an impossible feat, Damon. And I'm going to echo what you're saying. Uh, Kaylee Reese is, is up against one of the top flight actors that will ever live. You know, Jodie Foster is one of the single best. And here's Kaylee Reese bringing, and by the way, you know, as many women fighters as, as anyone will ever know, because, because of your, your job, um, I've done documentaries with, with women fighters before there's a stoicism, there's a way they carry themselves. Um, Kaylee brought that to this, to this performance you know, her, the, the, the idea that she is willing to fight for what matters for her. Um, you know, there's an edge to that, that I think an actor would have a hard time bringing. So she brings some of kind of her person, the idea that her character is a soldier, her character is a fighter and it comes across very well. And I saw a lot of authenticity in a lot of her moments that, that actors work their ass off for their whole career to get. She just knew how to tap into it, and it was super impressive. I just enjoyed every second I saw her on on screen. Um, also, the way Issa wrote this character, clearly Kaylee tapped into it and was like, "I know, I know exactly how to lock into this." I think the 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 page and the character and the acting all came together. I mean, you, you can't sing her praises enough. And of course, Jodie Foster was incredible. If she doesn't get an Emmy nomination, I quit. Like she's at least at worst <laughs> got to get a nomination. She is so good in this show. It's her first TV role since very, very early in her career. Uh, she's a tour de force in this show. She is classic. Jody. She is again, because part of the attraction I had of her playing this role of being like a kind of a hardened older police chief is that, you know, she played the young ingenue, uh, FBI agent in Silence of the Lambs and so in a way this is like 30 years later this is kind of like would this be what Clarice Starling would be 30 years later you know what I mean like she's seen some shit you know and that's oh, kind of yeah. what we get with Liz Danvers now there are different characters but they're law enforcement characters so there is a correlation and she plays her with such depth and like she is like let's be honest a big part of this show is Liz Danvers an asshole like she yeah. is just she doesn't she doesn't have time for your bullshit. She doesn't have time to hear your excuses, your whatever. Uh she's not in the mood. And and she and throughout the series she continues to evolve and progress and change as a character and Jodie Foster hits every single note perfectly. I'm not going to make a list and say, you know, who's the number one actor. I'm not going to do this like a top 10 list. But if you were making a top 10 list and you're trying to argue with me, who is the number one actor in the world? And you're going to say, oh, it's Denzel. It's this, whatever. Jodie Foster is somewhere in that argument is my point. Absolutely. Just an absolute powerhouse. Um, I think what what this what this season actually did really well, converse to what we just finished talking about, was how much it set itself apart. And the casting of somebody like Jodie Foster can do that. When you bring in just one of the best actors who will ever do it, 
you no longer have to live in the shadow of the character Russ Cole, or even Marty for that matter, played by the great Woody Harrelson. Now you have Russ Cole and you have Danvers. And when you say Danvers, people know exactly what you're talking about now. Because she was she left an incredible impact as a character. And and Jody really knew how to live in that character. I knew so much about that character without her ever having to say anything. She could exchange a look with somebody and I go, I know what they've been through. That's masterclass acting. I really like I, I've 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 known actors over the years and, and some of them more fledgling than others. And, and the ones that are still trying to, you know, get their get their ground. They're like, I don't know, like, I don't know how to look at it. I go watch Meryl Streep, watch Denzel Washington, watch Jodie Foster. They do something that just transports you to where that character is in their lives. And it's, and, and you feel it on the inside. They actually get into the interior of you through their performances. That's a Jodie Foster. And this is a, it's, it was a massive coup in my opinion to get her for this season. I think it took the dynamite script. I think it took Issa's vision for Jodie to go, yeah, I'll lend my talents to this. I'll go and spend three or four months in Iceland where they filmed this in complete darkness. And they did 55 days of night shoots, which if you know anything about night shoots, they suck. They got one of the best actors on the planet to do to do it. And she delivers on all levels. It's wild when you think about it. Through four seasons of True Detectives, they've had three Oscar winners. In the series, yeah. Matthew McConaughey won an Oscar, Mahershala Ali won an Oscar, and now Jodie Foster, uh, Colin, oh, Colin Farrell, Farrell. Well, he knew he was nominated. He didn't win. Yeah, um, but he nominated. Yeah, yeah, nominated. So, I mean, Jesus, like, talk about the acting power they've had in four seasons of this show. Holy oh, shit! Wait, didn't he win for Banshees of Inisherin? I didn't. Did he? No, I didn't think. He, did he win? I think he did. I think did they're all win? Oscar winners now. Are they? Hold on. Oh God! Not, now we have to find out. I gotta find out. I don't. I, I feel like did he win? I, why am I feeling like he didn't win? I thought he did. Maybe he did. Folks, folks, these things are important to us. Hold on, I gotta look here. Uh, <laughs> Academy Awards, Best Actor. No, he was nominated, but he did not You're win. Nominated. Okay, he did nominated. Win. Yeah, he was nominated. Uh, yeah, he was nominated for Banshees of In a Sharon, but she he did not win. Uh, so no. Okay. Yeah, nominated. Yeah. He did win Either a bunch way. of awards. He won, uh, I believe he won. Let me look see if I'm right about this. He won the, uh, yes, he won the Golden Globe. He did win that, um, but he did not win the, uh, he did not win the Academy Award. So, Either way, you're talking about award-winning actors across the board. Yeah. Jodie Foster now gets to hang her hat on True Detective, and I think in one of the best ways possible. I mean, really, this will be an unforgettable season, and it's in large part to what she brought to it. Let's move on to our next category, our fantastic Ken Foray Banana Hammock MVP Award. This is the award that we hand out to the most valuable player from whatever movie we're reviewing, in this case, a TV show. And it could be a cast member. It could be a super, it could be a music supervisor. It could be a director. It could be a, a writer. It could be anybody that's involved with this show. We name it after the great character actor Ken Foray for his role in From Beyond, where he decided to save the world by running down to a basement in nothing more than a thong bikini. So this is the Ken Foray Banana Hammock MVP Award. Patrick, who gets your MVP award for True Detective Night Country? My MVP award goes to Issa Lopez, director and writer of True Detective Night Country. Damon, this is the definition of vision. 
she brings in her horror uh, roots, and we we admitted that this is one of the more horrific uh, seasons of True Detective. It's it's just laced in that dread and that horror dread, and in, in the in the angles that are chosen, in the shots that are chosen, in the atmosphere that is built. So that's Issa Lopez. That's her ideas and her vision coming to screen in, in a really great way. That's her writing and her development of the characters. These are very lived in characters, as I said before. There's a lot of emotional storytelling, which is a really, I think when you, when a show falls flat and feels empty, it's because it's lacking emotional weight. It's lacking that humanity. Issa Lopez knew how to tap into it here. Every single one of these characters, I don't care the good ones, the bad ones, there was all something deep down in these people that was motivating them on an emotional level. That's what MVP is all about. It's it's uh, she brought all of her powers, all the best things that she can bring to a production. And it, we got True Detective Night Country, arguably the next best season of True Detective since the first. So the real answer is Issa Lopez. She is the answer. She is the MVP. She crafted the show. She came up with the show. She came up with the character. She came up with the story. This is a singular vision of an incredible artist. So really, she's the MVP. But I do want to I do want to give a nod, and this is going to be a controversial nod. If a lot of people are going to be pissed off about this because what we talked about earlier. But I'm going to give my MVP on a, on a on a lower MVP level, not Issa Lopez level. Issa Lopez is the real MVP. Let me be clear about that. But my MVP, I'm going to give credit to because even though clearly he doesn't like this season and clearly he doesn't want to be associated with it. My MVP is Nick Pizzolatto for creating this show because you don't get True Detective Night Country without True Detective Season 1. You don't get True Detective Night Country without Nick Pizzolatto. This is his brainchild. Now, did Issa Lopez make it her own show? Absolutely. Did she create her own world that had a tone similar to the first season or towards other seasons of True Detective? Absolutely. Did we get back to the heart of the two cops, which was the heart of the first season, the second or the third season? The second season kind of teetered on three people, but, you know, kind of two. It kind of centered around yeah. uh, Rachel McAdams and Colin Farrell's character. But there was also a third one kind of slotted in there. But the idea of True Detective was two detectives kind of investigating a crime. That model was created by Nick Pizzolatto. Now, did he also set the um, did he also set himself up for failure because he had such an incredible first season? Absolutely, nothing he could have done after that, with short of bringing back Rust and Marty, would have appeased people because that first season was so freaking good. But I do want to give him a nod because even if he hates this, even if he doesn't want to be associated with it, even if he's trying to condemn it, and I don't appreciate his comments. Because I don't, it's not Issa Lopez's fault that she took on a job uh, and did a great job with it, by the way. And sorry that like you know your last couple seasons weren't as well received. That's not that's not her fault, um, or that your deal with HBO ended. Not her fault. But I do appreciate that Nick Pizzolatto created this universe because it is a very unique universe that I've not seen before. There's a lot of detective shows out there. There's a lot of murder mystery shows out there. There's a million cop procedurals out there. Yeah. True detective is wholly singular and unique in the way it's done. Even if again, I didn't like the nods to season one, the tone was the same. The character development was similar. The murder investigation felt familiar. All that felt lived in. And I knew what to expect. I had an idea, an estimation of what was coming because they said it with the tone. And that is largely due to what was set in the first season. So I have to give a nod, even though 
He seems like he was a bit of an ass about it. We don't get here without Nick Pizzolatto. I mean, we do get here without him because I think Issa created something that was totally different. Um, but I, you know what? I can't. I can't. I can't really. I can't really give him any flowers on this one because he wasn't graceful. He didn't have to be, um, certainly. But the fact that he couldn't be graceful and just go, I hope everybody enjoys the season. You know, he certainly gets a kickback being an executive producer. He gets a little bit of money on it that that he could that he wanted to kind of tear down another artist to me he's persona non grata i'm not interested in him anymore I, you don't need to tear somebody else's work down to build yours up let your work stand for what it is and be confident in it be confident in what you did instead of kind of priming people to dislike this which a lot of fans latched onto they went nick pizzolatto's he's the goat so if he says it's it sucks then i've decided before it starts that it sucks and that that's not you i'm just saying that there are certain people out there that certainly i saw some real shit posters that are like on his dong for no for no good reason because he has no skin in their game but i thought it was shitty that he couldn't be graceful about it he doesn't have to say he loves the new season. He doesn't have to promote it. But to kind of shoot it down before it starts, I think is a crappy thing to do. My only slight, and I do mean slight, defense. And again, it was shitty to go after Issa. It was shitty to, to make a comment so backhandedly about Issa Lopez and your uninvolvement in the show. My only defense, and it's a very slight defense, is that television and movies are a very nasty business and creators are often shat on by the executives in the studios. When Hawkeye came out for Disney Plus, Marvel show starring Jeremy Renner and Haley Steinfeld, that show, really enjoyed that season. It was largely based upon a, 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 a original comic book that introduced Kate Bishop into the Hawkeye mythology, and it was largely based around, I believe, uh, God, why am I not forgetting, uh, Matt's, uh, what is his name? I can't remember his name. Fraction? Mi- Matt Fraction, I think it was. They, like, barely mentioned it at the bottom of, like, the last screen of, like, you know, partially written, whatever. Like, he got, like, yeah. a tiny, tiny mention in the credits. And comic book writers, if you read, like, this happened with um, uh, Captain America Civil War, the original writer of that, who did the actual Civil War comic book, they mentioned him. He didn't get kickbacks. He didn't get any money from it. Like, they basically said, you gave us everything to write. We're taking your idea and making a movie out of it. You don't get shit. And so the comic book community is like, what the fuck? Like, these guys made these stories, and you're not even, you're barely giving them credit, much less involving them and giving them money for a story they crafted. My only defense here is whether you like him or not and whether his comment was shitty or not, and it was, I get the feeling, and again, this is here's my interpretation, Patrick. Yeah, fair enough. My, my interpretation is it was taken away from him because it was his baby. He did season one. season. He was the, the, the main. Yes, he wrote all of season one. All of it was all him. Yes, season two and three involved other writers, but he was the driving force behind it. His deal with HBO ended, and it seemed like the show was dead. Like, they were just going to be done with it. Nick Pizzolatto's gone. He signed a deal with FX, and he's just moving on. And then they revive it, and they don't tell him about it. And I think that's one of the comments he made. They didn't contact me about it. They didn't They didn't ask for my opinion. They didn't even tell me it was happening. As a creator and as a writer, it would probably piss me off a little bit if the if I made something, if I wrote, if I created, oh, sure, yeah. if I created the Sopranos, I'm David Chase, 
and HBO puts out a trailer saying The Sopranos 2024, AJ is now the boss. And David Chase is like, what the fuck? Like, I didn't <laughs> sign off on this. Like, you didn't tell me this was happening. What the fuck is yeah. this? Yeah. I can understand him being a little irritated. So do I agree with what he said? Do I agree with the shitty attitude? Do I certainly agree with the way he kind of kind of made it seem like Issa Lopez's version was not good? I didn't like any of that. But my one slight justification is as a creator, when you have something taken away from you, and I understand that's the way of the world. That's how studios yeah, work. Yeah, but it sucks. It sucks. And that's all I'm saying. Like, they didn't consult him. They didn't tell him it was happening. They didn't like, hey, man, we're thinking about making another true detective. Like, would you like to be involved? Or, hey, we're doing this. Like, just so you know, like, fuck off. We don't want anything to do with you, but we're doing it. That's yeah. not the way the world works. So I would, I understand to a certain extent as the salt, because it wasn't like, it wasn't like he was hired by HBO to write True Detective. He wrote True yeah, Detective. Yeah, he came up with it, and they, they bought it from and him. And they yeah. bought it. And then it got taken away. And so even though, you know, I don't agree with how he did it, I do understand a little bit of the friction being like, hey, this is my thing. You took it from me, and you're not even telling me it's like you're t- not even telling me it's moving on. Like You're basically saying, hey, we made a new version of your show, and fuck off. That's my yeah. only justification of it. And I would the only counter I have to that is so attack HBO, don't don't attack don't attack the series that people you know like get get specific if you want to be specific get specific and attack HBO. Instead, he kind of tried to set up his following to say we're not going to like this version of the show. That's kind of what he he was playing around with words there to kind of just say this ain't this ain't what I approve of. And so I think it's shitty. I think because because it, it it only it only. It only tarnishes Issa and Jody and and Kaylee and Kaylee and all these all the people who worked on the show. When if he, what he's mad at is HBO, so be mad at HBO. It is, but don't, it is, but, but don't trash that people who created the show. They had nothing to do with that. And if he was in the same situation, and they were like, "Hey, you want to take over the new season of Game of Thrones? Here's a mountain of money. You better fucking you bet your fucking ass he takes it." I mean, I'm just giving an example. But my point was, I didn't like that he attacked them. But if he attacked HBO and didn't try to try to you know, cock block the show, then I would have been like, yeah, I get it. I get it. And As a, it does, it does suck that studios steal shit from writers. They do it all the fucking time. The, the, that's the reason the writers go on strike is they're the ones that get paid last. Like he, he's got legit grievances, but his grievances aren't with Issa Lopez and Jodie Foster. His grievances no, are with HBO. He's not. And I agree. The way he went about it was wrong. And his comments saying, you know, don't blame me. I had nothing to do with the show. Cause he basically set the tone that he didn't like it by saying that but again as a creator and as seeing a million comic book creators who just get screwed over constantly and they don't even get like if you went and again it's not their fault but if you walk up to chris evans and say man did you like the original story that captain america written by matt fraction or whoever wrote it or ed brubaker which was a big part of winter soldier he'd be like who the fuck's ed brubaker (laughs) like if you're ed brubaker and you created the winter soldier which he actually did I'd be a little pissed off. Like, hold on now. Like, sure, I, you know, sure. So I'm, again, I'm not, I don't like the way you went about it. I really don't. But as a creator, I can understand the, fr- like the irritation that you created this, it's your baby, sure. it was taken away from you. And they didn't even bother to tell you this was happening. They're just like, oh yeah, here's true detective. Like they announced it as night country. And he's like, the fuck? Like, yeah. You know, so again, I don't agree with the way you went about it, but as a creator, as a writer, I understand I being that irritated. <laughs> I get it. It's just his ire was with HBO, and and for some reason he he attacked the show instead. His, his problem isn't the show. His problem is with HBO. 
But I understand the irritation is what I'm getting at. And also, as I said, my MVP, the reason I give him that is because we don't get here without, like, I understand, like, Issa Lopez had a vision for an idea of a show. Would that have ever come to fruition? Would it ever have gotten on HBO? Would it have ever become anything? I don't know. I can't say that for sure. Is Issa Lopez yeah. incredibly talented? Absolutely. But do I know for sure that her vision would have involved Jodie Foster and Kaylee Reese and had all the resources? No. The reason it happened is because True Detective. It was they wanted a True Detective story. That's what she crafted it into. And it doesn't happen without Nick Pizzolatto creating the series. So I got to give him his flowers for coming up with the original idea. Because without that, we don't know that we would have ever seen this story. Sure. <laughs> I mean, he's it's true. A dick. He's a dick, but he's a dick. Uh, I disagree, but you know, he's a total dick. I mean, I'm not saying he's not talented and I'm not saying that he doesn't have a right to be angry. I'm saying he's a dick, but that's what I'm saying. He's entitled, but he's entitled to his opinion. He's entitled to be angry. And I I acknowledge that he did it in a dickish way. He did, but he's entitled to be a dick because it's his thing. He had it. Like I said, if you're, if you're, uh, I'm trying to think of like, um, God, I'm trying to think of like a really bad cover song. Like if you're, if you're the original artist, nah, Damon, I understand all of the <laughs> grievances he has. Yeah. He was just a dick about it. It's not that I don't understand. He was a dick about it. That's the problem. It's that's and the again, only problem I have with it. And again, it's I'm, not that I have a problem with him having a problem. He was a dick about it. <laughs> and as a creator, maybe he has a right to be a dick about it. I, I guess. Uh, I guess. Let's talk about best episode. Six episodes. We got six of them to go through. Uh, Patrick, what was your favorite episode in True Detective Night Country? Mine was the finale, and it and and the reason is because of what we what we discover, what we turn over. I think if you don't stick your landing, then the show can kind of fall apart. Lost. Whew, big problem there, right? Um, but a, a, a show like Breaking Bad. Um, it stuck its landing and, and, and people praise it. I, I think Sopranos ending stuck, stuck its landing. I really lo- I loved how Sopranos ended. I think this ended well. I loved how the original season of true detective ended where it was like, Nope, this is some real shit that really happened. And here's how it went down. This finale tied things up in a, in, into, in my opinion, a very clean way. And it serves some justice for some people that deserved that justice and, you know, mind you, they're out in this wild country, this night country. And so you get some country justice, right? And we, you and I love like revenge movies and shit like that. So to see that it was like a bunch of women who were like, we're sick and tired of seeing our women disappear and nothing happening. We're going to do something about it. I loved that that was the end. And so for me, as much as I liked all the other episodes, the fact that it was that in the end that it was just like we're going to serve our own type of justice because justice never gets served for us loved how that ended so i like the finale a lot um but i can't pick it as my favorite because of my issue with the whole tie together it just it didn't need to be there so again not to rehash our other conversation oh but no. that's what as much as i like the finale and i like the ending i i'm sitting here saying everything i like the one thing i didn't like that again that the fact that it didn't have any meaning to it and whatsoever just bugged me and so that kind of took away something for me from the finale so my favorite episode goes on the complete opposite and which is the debut episode because yeah. much like the first season of True Detective, and this is where I talk about this 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 season pays homage to the first season just by the tone and the way the setup was made that didn't need all the other crap. 
from the opening scene to those scientists, the creepy scene in there where they're in the station, the lights flicker, it goes out, they're disappeared. And then the very end when we see the corpsicle and oh my God, what is this? The introduction of Danvers, the introduction of Navarro, all these characters, this world of living at the edge of the world in Alaska, this little one horse town with 250 people or whatever the number is. That whole setup was brilliant. When the first, and again, just being honest, when the first episode of the first season of True Detective ended, I was like, I am so fucking in. I am so in. Had the same feeling here. When that first, when that episode ended, I was like, oh man, we are on. Now, I'll be honest. I didn't have that same feeling in season two. I don't even remember if I really had, I liked season three, but I don't remember even if I had that feeling at the end of the first episode of season three. Season four, Night Country, when that first episode ended, I was like, I cannot wait to watch episode two. And that, to me, is the sign of a great episode, because if you don't hook people into the beginning, um, weirdly, like you talk about finales, like I would argue Breaking Bad, which is one of the greatest TV series of all time, did not have a great opening. That first season it loses a lot of people. It had a great pilot, but the but the whole season was not in- interesting. Was, You're right. I heard, a lot, I heard a lot of people being like, yeah, I kind of wanted to now. It's like, dude, per- per- trust me, stick around. It gets so much crazier. Yeah, you first, had to wait a while. But yeah, like it, but even the pilot, it was a good pilot, but it wasn't like when it was over. Oh, it was, it was a like, very good pilot. Yeah. I, but I even in that moment, I was like, oh, my God. Uh, this is like, and I, I was a late arriver to Breaking Bad, so I didn't same, tune in when it first said. Um, Game of Thrones is a great example where the first episode was just like holy shit moment after holy shit moment. It was such a great setup. Now they, you know, they blew it at the end. The ending of Game of Thrones was terrible, but um, the first episode hooked you in immediately. So I appreciate a great for Lost is a great example of that I agree with you. The ending was weird and didn't tie everything together and they just made it up as they went along. They've admitted that, but the first episode, that first two hour episode, Holy shit. If you were not hooked, you don't have a pulse. Cause that first two episodes are lost. You're like, oh. I'm in, I'm in another, another great pilot. Yeah. And, and true detective season four, night country, hell of a pilot. I mean, just if, you're right. Just totally locked in. Like, I can't wait to see what happens next. I really can't. And the follow up episode was fucking great, too. Yeah. I mean, it's just they just knew how to kind of keep pulling you back in. You couldn't get out of this thing. And very I, I good t- and very reminiscent of the first season in that respect where you're just so invested. And I real, I want to throw out that you mentioned earlier. A lot of people said the middle episodes kind of dragged. I completely disagree. I was enthralled Same. from beginning to end. I did not have there was not a bad episode in the bunch, in my opinion. Like I said, my. I my only problem was again, um, and even though we argued about it for like an hour, honestly, it wasn't even. That, like, it's just it was an annoyance. It wasn't like I hated it. It just annoyed me. Like don't put it in there, but it didn't ruin the show for me. And the show is enthralling from beginning yeah. to end. I didn't think the middle episodes dragged at all. I was way invested. So yeah, don't don't get me. With that. Also, let me also give credit. Uh, I loved the uh, the intro by the handsome family in the original True Detective. The that song loved it but the billy eilish song in uh, true detective night country i'm a big billy eilish fan i was like fuck I yeah like billy eilish. i was like give me some billy eilish that was great i loved the, the little tweak and using that as the intro song so. and there were people complaining about that shit and i was like god damn do people just like to complain <laughs> Like, yeah, now like that it's a cool is, fucking song. Yeah, now that, I mean, is that is one hundred percent people complaining just to complain because uh, complain because yeah. Billie Eilish is fucking cool and that song is awesome. So yeah, come on. I was way into that. 
<laughs> Let's talk about best scare because uh, this show, as we said at the very beginning, forever ago, as people are like, "Holy yeah, three shit!" Days ago. You guys are, three days ago when we stopped arguing about whether this <laughs> was annoying that season one and season four weren't connected. Uh, best scare. This is a horror show. There were legitimate scares in Night Country, which was a little surprising because I didn't know that it was going to be that way. What was your best scare in True Detective Night Country? A lot of scares, Damon, but none quite like, and I'm sure this got everybody. Uh, when they found out that one of their corpsicles was still alive. <laughs> Holy shit. So the guys are trying to navigate the crime scene. And oh, again, all these frozen corpses in place. They snap one of the corpses, what they think is a corpse's arm. And all of a sudden, the corpse starts screaming and I'm sitting next to my wife and she goes, what the fuck? And not in, in, in a very like, why is this happening? Why am I witnessing this right now? This awful, terrible thing that it, you watch this half frozen corpse starting to scream. And I think that was the cold open of the episode. And it was just like, Jesus Christ, that was fucking intense. Yeah, that was I did not see that one coming at all. Like that was a no. moment that I was just like, well, you got me there because I didn't think any of these guys <laughs> were alive. Uh, yeah, that one definitely got me. That was a good one. My best scare came in. I want to say it was episode five when Liz and Navarro are down in the dredge or maybe it was episode four. They're in the dredge, which is an abandoned ship that is kind of almost become like a hangout in this area. And they're investigating because they believe that Clark, the scientist, is hiding there. And so they're looking through there and Navarro starts getting visions of like her sister and there's something tying this. And then she turns around at one moment, her sister's there screaming in her face. Oh, I was like, oh shit. <laughs> it just got Jeez. me. I was like, God damn. There's so many of those great classic kind of like horror jump scares. Yeah. Like it's it's littered all over this show and because because it deals with ghosts and my wife was jumping multiple times. Even in that final episode when they're in the cave and she turns around and there's Clark she was like, "Ah, what the <laughs> fuck?" <laughs> like Yeah. The show will get you, man, because it's again, Isa Lopez comes from horror roots and it's all over this show. Really in the execution of of the scares is a very obvious place to see it. Yeah, but that one was a good jump scare because I think if I remember correctly, yeah, she saw her she saw her sister floating in the water and like realized what it was. Then she turned around and she's right there. I was like, oh Jesus! So oh, yeah, and she's all you know, it's kind of zombied out or ghosted yeah. out. It's it was it was creepy. Yeah, very creepy. All right, let's move on to our next category, which is can we survive the night country? This is where you and I inject ourselves into whatever we're watching, in this case, True Detective. So apparently you and I are living in Ennis, Alaska. Patrick, I'm going to answer for you. Let me just see if I'm right about this. You're not making it out because it's fucking cold and you're from San Diego. You are not making it out of this thing. Damon, you couldn't be more wrong. <laughs> Truth be told, I absolutely love the cold. I gen like I just uh, I actually was in Iceland and I went to where they filmed uh, True Detective, it, and it was it was almost a year. Uh, it was like almost like nine months before um, before the the this, the show came out. I love the cold. I love icy cold winter. Now that doesn't mean I want to shovel driveways. Don't get me wrong. <laughs> Don't get me twisted. But I love the cold. That's what uh, I think you've you've heard me complain off the air many times when it's like, uh, I don't know, uh, starting about May in this room where I do the podcast, it becomes insufferably hot for me. I hate the heat. I genuinely hate it. I love the idea of the night country, Damon. And I and I do think and I, I think about the cast of characters, all the all the side characters. 
you know, you and I, if our lives were just slightly different, we probably would have ended up in a place like Ennis. Like we'd certainly be on that bill. Like, yeah, I live out in the fucking encampment way out where there's no electricity. <laughs> like I was close enough. Um, but ultimately, Damon, would I survive? My opinion is yes, I would, because I'm not a shithead. I'm not going to go out there and 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 mess with indigenous peoples or disrespect people or do anything like that. So I'm not getting my nose dirty so I don't end up uh, incurring the wrath of karma. So I'm going to say, you know, I, I, the cold isn't you know, I live in Ohio, so I'm used to the cold. That doesn't bother me. I was joking because you live in California and most California yeah. people and most California people when it's like 50 degrees, they're putting on winter coats. And I'm like, that's like summer around here, man. Like, uh, I, love, I shorts. love 50. <laughs> um, so the cold wouldn't bother me. I don't like cold, but I can I've lived in it my entire life, so it doesn't bother me. Um and weirdly, I'm very much a city boy. Like, I like the convenience of living in a city. Like, I li- I grew up in a one-horse town, and when I moved to a city for the first time when I was, like, a teenager, I was like, my life has forever changed because now I have the convenience of a big town. Everything is here. Like, everything I need is a is a, a within a 20-minute car ride. Every food I could want, every clothes I want to buy, every clothing I want to buy, every activity I want to do, movies, concerts, it's all there. So... I'm a city boy, so by definition, you would think I could never hack it in a in a isolated ass town in the middle of nowhere. That being said, if you ever listen to this podcast on any level, you know one of my favorite brands of horror is isolation horror. One stop, like one room horror. I love isolation horror. There's part of me deep down inside that thinks I would love living in a town like in a Alaska where I am just cut off from the rest of the world. No one can mess with me. No one can, none of that, like none of the outside shit matters. You are just part of this town and the rest of the world is cut off. There's something kind of poetic about that. Even though I yeah. fully admit I'm a city boy. The only thing that would put me in trouble here, I think I'd be like you. I wouldn't, I definitely wouldn't be a shithead. My only issue would be, I probably would be one of the activists basically telling the mind to go fuck itself and that could backfire yeah. on me but yeah. there's a world when i was a kid my family everyone in my family was involved in law enforcement in some way for shape or form my brother was in the army my other brother was a uh worked in a prison my dad worked in a prison like lots lots of law enforcement history in my family lots of military history i was the first one not to do any military service everyone tried to get me to sign up for the military i had no interest But I did when I first went to college and I was involved in uh, English literature and psychology. I had a class with a criminal psychologist who was a professor who also did criminal psychology for the police and for um, uh, for prisons. And I was really into it. And he's like, you would be great at this. Like if you actually studied and became a criminal psychologist, like you could work for the police. You would be a great criminal psychologist to help people solve crimes because like that's a big part of it. Right. Like um, uh, um, what do you call them? Profilers, things like that. He's like, you'd be really good at this. And I was way interested in it, but I was more into writing. So I never, I pursued psychology for several quarters, but ended up just focusing on English. There's part of me that feels like I would have been in part of the investigation. Cause I feel like in another world, I could have been like a, a criminal psychologist or a cop or a detective. So yeah, I think I'd survive and maybe even help solve the crime. I would hope so. I would hope so, Damon. And, and at, and at best you could at least just fucking pound the fucker right into the snow who, who, who did the crime. <laughs> 
Yeah, we just, and here, just one hammer over the head and, and spike him right into the ground. And I guarantee you, Peter Pryor, I'd find out where that fucking spiral symbol came from quicker than you did, buddy. <laughs> hey, he was a greenhorn. We know that. He was yeah. he was still learning. <laughs> just saying. I would have found that search. <laughs> Some uh, guys don't have that gear. <laughs> yeah. I would have found that Wikipedia page real quick. Uh, <laughs> last category is always, Patrick, is it scary? We've already kind of answered this question, but we'll answer right here again. True Detective Night Country. Is it scary? Hell yes. As scary or even at times scarier than the original. I mean, truly some horror elements in this one. We wouldn't have done a supersized podcast if this wasn't a horror show. We got a horror show, Damon. And uh, that just that just tickles me pink. And I truly do love uh, this season of True Detective Night Country. I thought it was great. Yeah, I'm with you. It was scary. It was definitely it had such a tinge of the supernatural, even more so than the first season. As much as I think the first season was absolutely an occult horror thriller show, this one was very much a horror show. Like there was no you could debate with someone was the first season a horror show. I think it. I think, again, I'm more about inclusion. Like I think a lot of serial killer stories are horror because it's a serial killer. For God's sake, you're killing people. Totally. but if you're going to argue with me, you can argue with me a little bit more about the first season. You can't argue with me here. This is a horror show in season four of Night Country. So, yes, it's absolutely a horror show. It's absolutely scary. There's actual jump scares that got me. I was like, holy shit, this doesn't happen. Uh, it actually got me a couple times. So, yeah, this is scary. And listen, there's like an hour long argument in the middle of this podcast where you and I were <laughs> bitching back and forth at each other about whether or not this should have tied back to season one in any way, shape or form. And we also argued about whether Nick Pizzolatto should have been a dick. (laughs) But I want to end on this, Patrick. For all that conversation, my one big hang-up, and even though I do back Nick Pizzolatto a little bit for why he's so pissed off, through all that, I want to commend Issa Lopez on an incredible show. I want to commend True Detective Night Country on being an incredible series. I loved it. It was really enjoyable. It was six episodes. I loved every episode. Did I have one beef? Sure. Did it ruin the show for me? Absolutely not. Did I, did the ending leave some ambiguity? Yes. Did I hate it? No, I enjoyed it. So I want to be clear about that. Like, I know we had a big argument in the middle of the show about one thing I didn't like, but I want to be clear that one thing didn't ruin the show. Didn't make me dislike the show. And I certainly didn't go on Twitter and say, fuck this show because that one thing (laughs) I liked the show. I really enjoyed the show. And when it was all done, I was happy. I watched it. And uh, Damon, what people don't know is that these days I don't actually have a ton of time for TV because it takes so long to kind of get the story done. I I have time to basically watch a movie for this podcast and then maybe watch an additional one because it's coming out that week or something like that. Um, So I don't give a lot of my time to TV anymore. I was so happy to give my time to this. Uh, I, I honestly, I wish it was 10 episodes, not, not because it was missing anything or anything like that. I just fucking enjoyed it. And I wanted more of it. Like I want season two of night country. How can we get Danvers and, 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 uh, and Navarro back on the scene? Like I like this show. And so, yeah, I mean, just simply put, it got me back into TV, at least for a little bit. Am I going to go watch a bunch of other things? Probably not. But it got me back into TV, and that's hard to do these days for a guy like me. Yeah, I'll be honest. When I got the the screeners from HBO, and it got to episode six, and it was like the final, I was like, no. I was like, there's yeah. eight episodes in season one. There should be two more. What the fuck? Only six? <laughs> so, yeah, I was like, I want more of this show. Give me more of this show. So I was like bummed out when it was only six. So, uh, yeah, wait for it. And, again, 
Issa Lopez had my support from Tigers Are Not Afraid. She continues to have my support. I want to see whatever she does next. And uh, whether it's HBO, True Detective, whatever else comes, uh, sign me up for more of that. So uh, that is our show. True Detective Night Country, all episodes are currently available on Max or watch it on HBO. They're replaying it constantly right now, so it's probably not hard for you to find it. I want to say a big thank you, as always, for everyone that tunes into the show. We appreciate it. Make sure you check us out on all your favorite podcast platforms, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, iHeartRadio, Amazon Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and you can also find us over on our YouTube channel. Just search Rewind of the Living Dead, and you can literally see me and Patrick arguing with each other over this episode. Uh (laughs) You got questions, comments. We actually got a, a, a request today through email of a, of a movie that somebody wants us to review. Send us an email, rotlivingdead at gmail.com. That's rotlivingdead at gmail.com. Or hit us up on social media. Just search Rewind of the Living Dead on Twitter, X, Facebook, or Instagram. Find us over there. Send us a DM. We'd love to hear from you guys. We do try to respond to everybody. Uh, so please hit us up. And you can also find us on our own personal social media channels. I am at Damon Martin, and you are? At Director Patrick. And a big thank you as always for everyone that tunes in each and every week to the show. We'll be back next week with another edition of Rewind of the Living Dead. Thanks for tuning in. We'll see you then. Peace. <laughs>